I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ever dance with the devil in the pale Hey guys, it's Phil here. Just uh, wanted to give you a heads up that after our episode with Rochelle Lefebvre on Dead Poet Society, we have an interview with Tom Shulman, the Oscar-winning uh, screenwriter of this movie, uh, our first Oscar winner. Uh, it's a great interview. He's wonderful, super funny, really insightful, gives lots of uh, bits of sort of behind the scenes uh, in terms of the making of the movie and uh it's just it's a it's a really fascinating and a really exciting interview and we hope that you'll stick around for it after we talk with Rochelle. Thanks guys. Hello and welcome to podcast like it's 1989 the podcast where we talk about the films of 1989 from atop our desks here in 2021. I'm one of your hosts Kenny Nybart and I'm Phil Iscove. And with us today back uh our reigning champion reigning defending <laughs> Back to reign over this podcast and defend, well, maybe not. We to defend. Dead Poet Society is Rochelle Lefebvre. So happy to have you back. So happy. I Everyone that I come on, I think you guys have picked my favorite thing to talk about, but this is the one. We didn't I, pick this one. You picked this one. Well, the best was I reached out. I, did, I texted <laughs> Rochelle and I was yeah. like, hey, uh, do you have any interest in coming on for Dead Poet Society? Immediately responded. With voice texts that that essentially expounded her love for this film, I was like, "All right, that I mean that that's easy." Which you will save and edit into the intro. Of the I have podcast, them saved. Yeah, obviously. no, they'll, they'll absolutely yeah. be folded into this. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's you know, I'm. What's interesting is, um, in the research I did on this film, I, I thought that this film, and I believe this film to be beloved, right? Like, I I I thought that this film was sort of this 
unimpeachable thing that everybody loved. And then I did like the slightest amount of research and realized there's a lot of people that really don't like this film, um, which is sort of... Who are Sis- they and where do they live? Well, Siskel and Ebert being two of them, just for, for what it's worth. Um, but but I, I was also just, I guess, I, you know, this is one of those films, Kenny, we've talked about this probably more in 89 than any other, than certainly in 99, of movies that were sort of ingrained in our DNA from a young age where like you saw this film and it's kind of almost hard to be critical of it on some level. Um, I saw this film when I was quite young. It had a, a pretty significant impact on me. And we'll obviously we'll, we'll, we'll unpack that. So it's, it, it was interesting for me to rewatch it. And then also to sort of see it through this lens of criticism to some degree. I sort of get it, but I also sort of feel like, yeah, it doesn't really affect obviously how I feel about the film. But you know, was this a big film for for you, Kenny? I mean, I'm assuming Rochelle it was for you. Oh, it was not. Okay, no, it was it's not a big film. Interesting. For me. I saw, okay, I, no, I, I didn't see it until uh, maybe college, maybe right oh, really? after college. It was a okay. film that I uh, maybe in high school, but it was a film that I had to kind of you know Come make to a, a little, point yeah. of putting on. Um, for whatever it's definitely reason. a school movie. It's definitely a movie that was put on in like I, I definitely saw it in an English class in in probably in junior high. It's definitely the I type of movie that a teacher there. could put I on in a VCR. Da- yeah, no, I sat down and I watched it. Uh, whenever I watched it, okay. and I definitely liked it. Uh, slash loved it. Like I, yeah. I mean, just like just straight up. I think this is. I think it re- really is a really wonderful film. Yeah. And easily the best of this subgenre of teachers who change your life. <laughs> um, I think upon rewatching it, there's a lot going on here that's uh, interesting in terms of why it captured the imagination of yeah. so many people our age and what exactly it's doing. Because I don't want to get too much into that now. I'm sure we'll yeah. we'll break it down more as we go on. But yeah. uh, Rochelle, talk to me about why yeah. you uh, when did you see it and champed at the bit to talk about? Yeah, this film. I I don't remember how I saw it. I know I saw it when it came out. Um, mm-hmm. I assume that was in the theaters. Um, yeah. I had uh, it, if someone came and said you you know your dad took you to that movie. I, my dad was an English teacher. I would believe them. It seems like the kind of movie my dad would have taken me to. Um, it's possible I saw it a year later on VHS, but I don't remember because I was like 10. Um, but I saw it and it was like fucking life altering and was just, it was like, felt like it was made for me. And then as I told Phil in my really enthusiastic voicemail. Um, I then, I then, I couldn't get enough. And then they made a book and the book had the same cover as the movie. Uh-huh. And it was the novel version of the movie. Um, sure. And I read that and I was in the sixth grade and I remember being in the sixth grade and I couldn't wait till like lunch and recess and library time so that I could just sit and like read Dead Poets Society over and over and over again. Cause I couldn't get enough. Um, and then when I rewatched all- it. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I, was just gonna say, I was just going to say two quick things. The first is the, the novelization, the idea of a novelization to me is so funny where it's like, I went to see the film, but then I want to read somebody transcribe what I saw in the movie. I, I wanted to just, I wanted to be in that world. 
Right. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I, want, not, you know what I, I mean? I just think it's and funny so like, that it exists. Yeah, That's all. I know it's, it's funny. Yet. And I guess at 12, I wasn't like such the literary critic. So I couldn't <laughs> yes. tell you if it was good or bad. I don't remember. You know, it was just, yeah. and it, it was interesting. It wasn't the screenplay. It was actually, yeah. like you said, like the novelization of it. And um, I just remember like, yeah, being in that world. But then when I rewatched it uh, yeah. two days ago in preparation for this, yeah. I was right back there. And when it was over, and I know that, you know, clearly the three of us love it, but, um, but this might be like a little controversial or I don't know, histrionic, but I, it was over and I went, is this a perfect film? <laughs> like, I, 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 like I, I really, have... <laughs> I, I really wanted there to be something wrong. I, I wanted to have something to talk about. And I was like, all I can talk about is why it's great. And not in a like debating way, just be like, I think it just might be perfect. And we should just end well, the podcast. I do think that of, of the movies <laughs> you've been on for, this is your fourth episode yes so anywhere but here an ideal husband titus and this Mm -hmm. i i would argue that this is probably the most kind of widely regarded everybody there's no question about right like of of those films then poet society is an american classic i mean it won best original screenplay it was nominated for best picture i I, actor i director i actor category fraud but whatever uh in a in a (laughs) In a lot of, is this the, a, would you say this is one of the biggest culprits? Not even close, right? Without question, this is this is this should this should be on the uh, on the poster for category fraud. It's like it's, wait, that's, say more. Kenny, can you explain Robin for Williams Robin why this, Williams isn't the lead of the movie by a long shot. So, but that's not my issue with this is <laughs> an ob- that he, you this would put him in best supporting one? actor is what you're saying. Yes, right? of that's course. What you're saying. Okay. This is an obvious one because he's not even the lead. But my issue isn't even uh, yeah. even in terms of lead and supporting. Sure. My issue is in terms of protagonist versus yeah. everybody else yeah. in the movie. Yeah. Um, the, the, the best actor, best actress goes to a protagonist. Now, there could be more than one protagonist in the film. Mm-hmm. And a protagonist could be a villain or an antihero sure. or anything along those lines. But it has to be somebody – for it has to be someone uh, from whose point of view – most all or at least the mo- most of the scenes that person is in that movie is being told from their perspective because it's not being told from his perspective but he certainly drives the plot right, I he's don't a think central he's he's, he's a course. central character he's, of course he's the well, impetus he's, of the movie he's, the, he's, right. he's yes but but that's okay i mean you look at a lot of sporting performances that's the the role they serve yeah. um but all that he, being said it, it's a great performance. It's my favorite performance from him, except really? for uh, Goodwill Hunting, which is uh, the very similar role with a mm-hmm. similar amount of screen time, probably more you know interiority, and he won Best Supporting Actor as he should have. Uh, well, maybe not with Tom. No, no, he no, should that have. That was the Burt Reynolds year. year. Uh, moving on, um, it's a beloved American classic. I think the I think the contrarian opinion is. This is not that good. Um, yep. And I, I am interested in, Phil, not that you have to give the contrarian opinion because you don't hold mm-hmm. it, but what is the contrarian uh, opinion? The yeah, contrari- what did you read? That's, I have the same yeah, question. The contrarian opinion is that it's overly sentimental, that it's unrealistic, that it's sort of playing in sort of bumper sticker kind of ideas um, and that it's 
giving license to a bunch of kids to do quote unquote whatever they want. So again, nice. I'm not I'm not obviously subscribing to any of these ideas. Um I will say that this rewatch for me um the only sort of significant bump I had if I had to pick one. Um I don't love the Knox storyline. Um Knox Overstreet, the Josh mm-hmm. uh, Josh, Josh Charles, Charles. storyline. I love um, his name. Knox yeah, Overstreet, Overstreet. a, a ridiculous name. and wonderful name. Um, and and I guess what I would say is it it kind of reeks a little bit of um, <laughs> of Aaron Sorkin's idea of what romance is, which is um, mm-hmm. pestering a woman until she capitulates and falls in love with you, uh, and and just sort of a uh, on top of the fact that I don't, I really don't love her being passed out and him kissing her. That's a whole thing that I think is a little bit, it, it, it a little cringy. Um, so that storyline for me, as much as I like the idea of, I mean, the girl dumping the football player for, uh, you know, for for the nerdy English student or what have you. That's all, and, and I actually do love the two actors. I think Josh Charles is fantastic and forgive me, I don't know who plays Chris, but um, that was the only sort of storyline that through a 2021 lens, I found myself being a little bit of, you know, it, it, it bumped me a little bit, but did it, did, how did, what did you guys think of that storyline? Yeah. The, the, the creepy kiss, you know, um, that bumped me from this lens. Um, but I, forgave it not to say that i not to say that i forgive every movie by going well right. it was 1989 well, sure sure you know sure. what i mean yes, and yes, it was yes, said yes. in 1950 yes. something yes. you know or whatever like 1960 yeah, yeah. yeah thank you that's not um that's not a reason to just you know forgive all the movies that err on the wrong side of something right um but i do think that it bumped me from this modern sensibility but didn't knock me out of the film and i understood it I in the context that. of the film mm-hmm. and i understood it in the terms of like the the moral and ethical relationship that mm-hmm. a high school boy in 1960 would have with a girl, right? You know, and 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 I can understand a high school boy, certainly one in a private school that is not surrounded by girls all the time, and has a teacher that says, you know, live your life, seize the day, go for it, suck the marrow out of life, and him interpreting that as I should get this girl mm-hmm. that I've fallen in love with. I understand all of that. And, and again, yeah. I, I, like I said, I still love this film. I'm, you know, we'll talk about obviously ratings at the end. It really didn't bump it down much for me, but it was the only thing that made me go a little bit of, um, I could understand if someone reviewed the film today and there have right. been articles, there's a whole Atlantic article about how much this person hates this film. Um, <laughs> I would just, I mean, it, listen, it's, it's obviously their prerogative um, yeah. and their opinion. Um, I, I guess to sort of, this was a long way to wait to answer your question, Kenny, but I think that you said it earlier, there's a lot of movies that tread in this territory. Right. I mean, we even did we did one earlier this year with Lean on Me as well. Like there are movies about teachers that, you know, inspire kids and what have you. This is definitely, I think, at the top of the the heap of those. But I could also imagine if I've watched all of them, I would kind of be like, well, this film is, you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like I understand people being worn down by the tropes. So but that's yeah. not this film's fault. I all right. So the, all I I 
hear everything you guys say, and I, I pretty much agree with everything you're saying. I think that um, there's a difference between this and Lean on Me, uh, which is uh, Lean on Me is not about Lean on Me is not about the content that the kids are learning. It's yes, not yes, about yes, the yes, actual yes, lessons. It's, it's literally about yeah. yeah. It's it's about it's about you kids kind of have no choice mm-hmm. but to play within this system now. Mm-hmm. So you can defeat the system later. Yeah. Um, which is like, you know, look, I'm crazy about that movie as people, as listeners of this podcast know, but it's a different idea. Uh, so this is not a comment on Lean on Me whatsoever. Yeah. The, the thing I really respect about this film mm-hmm. is contrary to most of those movies that are about the great teacher who comes in, this movie has the guts to uh, really plant its flag when it comes to what's important to learn, right? Mm -hmm. What's important Mm -hmm. within the four walls of the classroom, which I think a lot of people are are scared to do when it comes to that. Like, it's kind of easy. Well, Lean on Me is based on real stuff, but even in Dangerous Minds, there are other things to say, yeah, the system's fucked up. We're going to go against the system. But it's a little harder, I think, to say this is a a spirit and a uh, and a, a a way of approaching material in general that we think is a better way than mm-hmm. what you've been taught for the last several hundred years. Now, the reason I bring this up is because uh, I think, and I think this ties into your point about Knox and and the whole movie in general. Um, is I think this movie is at its core, and I don't say this derisively, uh, made for young people. Oh, it's for made sure. for people yeah. who are in high school or younger. And I think it is like a, a meant to be a formative text on how to approach uh, art, how to yes. approach art and how to approach learning. And and expressing yourself through art in some form. Expressing you, yeah, to, to some extent, but really it's like it, it's it's you can't evaluate art the way you evaluate science, the way you evaluate math, the way you it, it's a different thing. And I think that that's what a lot of young people get uh taken away with taken away with, you know, like sure. like um really kind of enchanted by. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I think this is a double-edged sword because in that respect, I think it works really well. I think it really did give birth to a lot of people our age who started to question what we're being taught and question the system, question the canon, question, mm-hmm. you know, kind of this, you know, white male Eurocentric patriarchy that, that we've been taught forever and say, look sure. here, look there, look there. You know, and I, I think that's a really good thing. I do think it kind of hurts the film because I'm not convinced the film lives up to its own ideals. I'm not sure the film is a really, I'm not sure the film is a particularly deep text. I'm not sure there's a lot of layering there. Um, I think it's, and I think it's a middle brow movie that, that gets its surface points across incredibly well. And I think it's a very good middle brow movie. And I, again, like middle brow movies, um, but I don't think that it's, uh, a particularly elevated movie like the text it's kind of as well I, uh, I, 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 I don't think it, I don't think I don't think Mr. Keating would have a field day breaking down dead poet society 
is what well, I'm getting at. I guess my, I, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, obviously, on this, Rochelle, but I, I wonder if this film, I mean, for, first and foremost, it should be said, you know, this is a, a Touchstone Pictures, this is a Disney movie, or, you know, ultimately, a, a, you know, within the banner of Disney. Um, I, and I that's think what that, Touchstone did. I mean, like, yeah, Touchstone, very well. Touchstone basically, extremely well, basically made movies that were not meant to offend. If they were going to push the envelope, they were going to push it slightly. Mm-hmm. It was generally in the direction of, you know, more progressive ideas, more inclusive right. ideas. But, you know, they are still trying to sell this kind of Disneyfication of the world, which, you know, for sure. Just need to be and moved it, a little it, bit it to the left, like, a little to the right. It feels like all of these things are really in harmony in this movie for all intents and purposes. You have Peter Weir, who's coming off of the success of Witness and Mosquito Coast, who has a fascinating career, which we'll, we'll talk about. But he's coming off of that. He wants to make a film called Green Card, which he ultimately makes shortly after this film. Mm-hmm. Um, this script uh, is sent to him, I believe, by Katzenberg or someone at Touchstone at the time. He reads it on a plane and like he's like, well, I have to do this. There, There is something very... I agree with what you're saying, Kenny, which is that it's not exactly the deepest movie, but I do think that this film touches on like bearing walls of adolescence, bearing walls of of being in school at that time. Um, it, it, I, I feel like it really understands what it's like to be a kid um, looking for inspiration, and I think that that is so powerful. And so palpable in this movie, um, you know, the, the casting of Robin Williams is 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 so profoundly perfect. Like, couldn't he, conceive of anyone else in the role. And we'll talk about the other casting, which all seems pretty crazy to me. But all that being said, he seems like the coolest teacher in the world. You know, I, I'm sure we all had teachers. Maybe we all had teachers. Nope. That no. Nope. I mean, I had teachers. Yes, I, I, a teacher that you were just like, this is the coolest teacher ever. Um, and I certainly had one. Um, it's just, it's a, it's a fascinating thing that this film is tapping into. It's hitting a vein in a way that, um, it's almost hard for me to articulate. What were you going to say, Rochelle? Yeah. Um, so much. Where do I want to start? Yeah. Um, (laughs) I, I like, yeah, I, I agree, but I, um, with so much that both of you said, and also, um, in listening to you, I realize, uh, I, I just, I, I also, I think I received it from a bit of a different place, like, like the frame just adjusted ever so slightly, um, which is that I hear everything you said, and that was, you know, part of my experience, but also it goes back to one of the criticisms, and, you know, Ebert can come for me or whatever, but the idea that it's overly romantic, um, I find like a, a comical criticism of this movie because the romance of it is what appealed to me. Right? right. The romance of it for me was the fact that it was unapologetically romantic was the point of the film. Yeah. Right. And there's a few things I will say, you know, just to make the actual academic argument about it um, is number one, I think that the film just like Keating recognizes that, you know, if you want to move the pendulum to a nice, happy, well-balanced center you can't just move it to the center. It has to swing all the way. I use this metaphor a lot, right? The pendulum has to go all the way the other way and then come back and course correct. And that's how the pendulum lands in the middle, right? It goes back and forth between extremes until it settles. And so part of what I love about this film is that it's not, he's not a teacher who just goes, I'm gonna give you 
the tools that you need and I'm going to connect with you in a way that's really practical, I'm actually going to have you tear out the fucking introduction, not read it and then tell you why there's a better way, but tear it out. Because I think that there's an understanding both from the filmmakers and I think in the cinematography, the way that the shots that Peter chose, it's so romantic visually, right? It's got, I mean, you think about them in the fog and their coats going down and, you know, the long, long shot of Ethan Hawke, you know, after he finds out Neil's killed himself, of Todd going down towards the water and it looks like he's going to walk out and fall through the ice. Like it's so cinematic. Everything about it is romantic. And I think that's just such a recognition of the fact that in order to counteract the programming, both academic and socially, of this like rigidness, you have to do that. You have to take someone all the way. Um, it's also about sort of, poetry and Shakespeare. That's, and well, like, so that was going like, to be my next point, which is like, oh, it's too romantic. Like, yeah, Byron. Like, they're literally six <laughs> poets from this period. They, they talk about Byron, right? Like, he's literally called the Romantics. I took a yeah. class in university <laughs> called Romantic Poetry, yeah, and yeah. we fucking revere these people, yeah. these men, for their yeah. right. And and they're so romantic. Yeah. And you know. Like the movie critics, you know, critics are not reading Byron, maybe at the time, but certainly not now. You know, they're not reading John Keats talking about the bittersweet, you know, the, the crushing of the grape on your tongue and the juices. People don't read that now, you know, in Ode to Melancholy. People don't read that and go, that's too much. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I mean, that's kind People of go, the thank point. God, I got right, my soul right. back. Thank yeah. God. It's a, it's a, it's a terrible criticism. And I, 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 <laughs> And I, and I, have, <laughs> or I and could I, have just said that. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, the, the romantic wasn't the word I got hung up on or I've been hung up on in terms of this film. It's when people call it overly sentimental. Same kind of idea. Right, same idea. Um, which is not a criticism. That's like overly romantic isn't a criticism. Overly sentimental isn't a criticism. Those aren't words that have negative or positive value. Right. That is just your that's just your subjective opinion. That's your subjective yeah. opinion. That that's not that's something taste. that you like or yeah. want from yeah. this. But you can't just sit here and say that's a problem with the film because um, it's not for all the reasons you said. I, my problem with the film, I guess, in extrapolating <laughs> upon that is uh, your pendulum point is well taken and something I agree with. I don't think this film is swinging the pendulum. I think this will. I think this this. This film is nudging. Now, I also think there's a there, there's value in that, but I think if this film was more radically swinging the pendulum, um, it right. would not have it would not have it may not have been a worse film, but it would not have found the particular audience that needed a nudge the way I think it did. Well, I but I don't want to put, of- I don't want to put words in Rochelle's mouth, but it feels like her perspective was more that Keating was. Yeah. In, within the context of the film, he was well, no, radical, no, she, radicalizing you, these kids. Yes, you said that, yeah. but you said it, you said, yeah. oh, the filmmakers as well. Yeah, oh, the well, filmmakers okay. in terms did, of I, yeah, I, in I, terms I, of leaning into the romance of it, absolutely. Like in um, terms of getting us to watch a film where we are meant to be moved, where we are encouraged. Yeah. These film, you know, this filmmaker Peter Weir and 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 the whole team of people who contributed to you know what we watched in this clearly want us to connect with our sentimentality and our mm-hmm. romanticism mm-hmm. and our, you know, and I think that 
I did feel like the, 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 you know, the score, I didn't look at who, mm-hmm. you know, who scored the film, but it's beautiful and it, and it's deliberate. It is, yes. it's, yes. you know, it's the, the cheap way of saying it is sort of the tugging on heartstrings, but it does it in a sophisticated, deliberate way, I think, where it's encouraging us to just have the feeling. Well, it, also and, something and, that doesn't bother me either. That's what yeah, it doesn't bother me there. That's what music is there for. So no, totally. I also wait. I have a I have a question. I don't want to forget it. But about the Knox thing, I was just thinking mm-hmm. about this as we were talking about romance. Um, I wonder if maybe the other reason why the Knox part didn't bother me when he like steals the kiss while she's passed out, in addition to you know time period whatever. Um, but it was so clear to me that this was not a scene where a guy was like, I just really want to kiss her. He yeah. wanted her to be his first kiss. Like, I felt so profoundly in that moment, like he'd never kissed a girl. It wasn't, it was like, there was something about it where like, it was so, it was like, it wasn't innocent or I don't know what the word is, but like, she was like this, like, God, she she represented the beginning of the rest of his life. It was like this first kiss. And there was something about, it was meaningful to him that it was her and so again, maybe because maybe it wasn't creepy for me because it was also steeped in this romance. I don't know if you remember, but like the shot yeah. is really tight. It's a really tight yeah, it's shot. It's a profile the party, of him kissing the top of the It's a head. profile. Yeah. And yeah. before that, before it's a profile, the party disappears. So it's the larger party. Mm-hmm. And then they actually cut the party Almost out. Right. They don't like, it's not a zoom in. It's like a cut to a real close up of him. And the party disappears. It's sort of his version of like the world went away, you know, <laughs> and it's just him and just her. And it's the only moment he'll have. And yeah, there was something, even, even the attempts to sort of have like the poetry in that kind of superseded whatever 2021 voice was in my head. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I didn't. I didn't watch that scene and and feel you know grossed right, out totally. or anything like mm-hmm. that. I think I just kind of was like, you know, it's it. it I, I just kept thinking about. It pulls you out for a second. It pulls me out for a second, yeah. and and it really just you know not to not to make it seem as though Aaron Sorkin's the only person who does this, but it does feel like I couldn't help but think of like there's a scene in Studio sixty of all things where like. Uh, Bradley Whitford is basically telling Amanda Pete, like, I'm coming for you. He literally says, I'm coming for you. I remember and we're supposed scene. to be like, that's the most romantic thing in the world. And you're like, no. So it's, it's, I think it's very easy to excuse the film for this. Very easy for all of the reasons we're, I mean, for, for all of the, the period stuff, mm-hmm. not in terms of 1958, I'm talking about 1989. I think, I, I think it, did take a long time for the men in power, the yeah. men who write these films, the men who direct these films, and the actors who play these roles to understand that is not what women want. Um, so I, I, I <laughs> right, that's not romantic. Right, I think it, I, I don't think any man who was involved in this had ill intent. I so agree. it doesn't 100%. like it doesn't really undercut yep. what the film is trying to do. What. I just don't really want to do is uh, give the film more credit than it deserves. And, and, and like, it's just, it's, I, I, I get what they were doing. I get what he was going for. And I get that, you know, I think that through Todd, through Neil, through Knox, through all of these guys, the five guys we like, mm-hmm. uh, they were showing, he was showing different ways that 
these guys are finding their true selves and finding ways to express themselves and finding ways to go after what they want or what they need. Uh, and in Knox's particular case, it was having the guts to go after the girl he had a yep. crush on. Yep. Uh, and this is the way they showed it. Yep. I don't think it's the way you would show it today. Um, I don't think it's all that important. Uh, I agree. I not not, just, not yeah, that yeah, we shouldn't yeah. be talking about it, but yeah. that's my kind of you know final. I don't think it's all that important to talk about like how we would do it today. And I don't think it kind of rises to the you know to the to the level of like contempt. You know, it's, I, no, totally. And, and I, I agree with you, to, but we have totally to spend agree. ninety yeah. minutes talking about a movie all three of us love. So goddamn it, we've got to pick something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was no, the yeah, thing. Yeah. Like I just I yeah, wanted look, to I, kind of, and, and I'm on this, and I'm I'm, I'm yeah. I feel like you know I'm I'm constantly kind of trying to figure out exactly how I want to approach these situations too, because I'm not super interested in, anymore in, you know, waving that this is problematic flag or waving the like, you know, ha 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 from our 40 years in the future vantage. But you're I sexist. certainly wasn't attempting. To I, do know that you're not, to I know you're not. I know you're not. But it does, you know, and there's part of me that like, you know, wants to be like, yeah, but she, she has no point of view. Like what happens when she wakes up in the morning? And of course I'm right. picking those things too, but it's, it's a document, right? At yeah. this point, it's a document. Yeah. Yep. Okay, uh, I have a question. Wait, am I right? Uh, Kenny, uh, I don't know if you share this on your podcast, but am I, I share right? Do you, have, do you have children? Did you have four a baby? Yeah, you four. have four kids. I, th- I was like, I thought you had kids, but I can't believe I've been here four times. And I don't know that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, don't I'm worry. Sure, I'm sure it's... Um, uh, but I don't know about you, but I had an interesting thing happen when I watched this that did not happen when I watched it when I was young or when I read the book. <laughs> um, which I'm very was, interested to hear this because me too. I really had strong, I had such an intense like reaction to watching it from the parents' point of view. Like I was watching the adults in this film in a new way. I was so, like I was watching Neil's dad and receiving that in a way that I'd never been impacted by that, that character before. And then. Even his mom, like the scene right before he kills himself, you know, where his mom has an opportunity to say something and he actually reaches out and she like tells him to get some sleep mm-hmm. and I know what's coming. And I just, as a mom, I like, yeah. And all that, and headmaster. And I just really had a lot for these grownups. I had a lot. <laughs> it, it, and, and it, it, yeah, I totally agree with everything you said. And it actually gave me a little bit more uh, appreciation for the film because it's uh, boring to, in the end of the day, it would be, have been boring, I think, uh, to just look at it as a screed, right? As a, this is how it goes. But if you do look at it mm-hmm. from Kurt Woodsmith's point of view, which, you know, I, I couldn't help myself but slip into his point of view every once in a while, uh, they were careful with that character. He was a, uh, a, a, a of, of a lower social status than the other parents at that school. He was obviously insecure. His hopes and dreams rode on his son. He didn't know how to express his love. He didn't know how to express support. He didn't realize what he was doing was not being supportive. Um, he, th- he came from an old school. I think he was a, he said he was a naval man or something along those lines, mm-hmm. um, where he thought that's how you parent. And that's worked for so many American dads. Um, he just applied it probably poorly to the wrong kid. And then the way he cried at the end, you know, my son, my son, um, there was dignity in that. There was a, he's it's great not, in this movie too. It's not. Oh my god! Just, when he yells yeah. right before he says, "My son, my son," he goes, "Oh no, oh yeah. Neil!" Yeah, like yeah. I just yeah. like, oh my yeah. son. There's, he's. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a role that I think in lesser hands would have played really arch. Arch. Agreed. 
and I think that that uh, Kurt does a does a tremendous he's, job of grounding it. Yeah. He's not the easy villain I thought he was when yep. I was younger, yep. and uh, it's not as one sided a story as I thought it was. It's mm-hmm. not you know it's not the the kids rising up against the evil parents. It really is kind of covertly kids rising up of not even rising up, but kids questioning two hundred years of. Uh, a you know patriarchy that um, they don't necessarily want to be a part of. Well, I would also say too, you know, there's that beautiful scene where Neil is talking to uh, to Keating about his dad and about how trapped he feels. And then when you think about the fact that the father is also trapped by circumstances as well, to a certain degree, his lack of being able, as you said, Kenny, to express himself emotionally, mm-hmm. his lack of being able to really connect with his son and to explain himself makes them both trapped in circumstances that unfortunately leads to a tragic end. But it is, it is, I agree with both of what you guys are saying that that as a kid you watch this film from the kids perspective and you just feel like the the adults are are obstacles right um, like poor neil has the yeah. worst dad right. doesn't understand him right. you know but then which you is watch when you're 12 time, how you feel about your own parents sometimes right but it's it's a much more balanced film mm-hmm. than i remembered it being in that regard um and i think that's well, perspective and age and you know to, to that end it does bring you to and this is you know touchy and trigger warning uh, and all that. But um, it does bring you to the question of Neil's suicide, which yeah. when I was younger made perfect sense to me. Yeah. And now uh, really uh, is difficult to kind of parse what went on there. Um, it's it's yeah. a lot. And it feels like if you read it from a, uh, a more of a... Um, you know, like uh, what's the word I'm looking for? If it's if it's more, you know, um, I don't know. What, okay. What's the word? It's like like sure like roundabout. It's not 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 literal. More figurative. A more okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Metaphorical figurative. kind of metaphorical. way. There you go. There yes, you go. You got it. Makes, <laughs> I got there eventually. A more metaphorical <laughs> kind of way. Yeah, it works very well for me. But it's not metaphorical right. in the context of this film. It's literal. And that's, it's powerful, but it is hard to kind of stomach. Um, I'm not sure. Wait, hard to stomach is not the same as like hard to parse, hard to, you know, like what, what is your, do you find it not, are you trying to say it's not believable I mean it the same way. Yes. No, no. I I mean it the same way. It's, I, 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 it it happened. So it's not really a matter of not believable. Mm-hmm. It, it the the question is more: Did they do the work you need to do to show why uh, any character would take this step? Um, and f- did they just use this death mm. as a device to get you to the end of the film for the other characters? Or was this an appropriate end for this particular character? Um, and I obviously always felt it was the latter. I always kind of felt like this is where mm-hmm. this character's story had to end. Mm-hmm. But um, it's t- it is, it's hard to, again, hard to parse in that it's hard to figure out exactly what was going on. And hard to stomach in, uh, it, it leaves me in a, it leaves me feeling uneasy about the use of suicide at the end of this film as a hmm. 
as as this kind of device. Now, again, like I, I, I these are these are criticisms I say with like with with love, respect, and admiration because I love this film and I think it works so beautifully and so well. But watching it critically this time and knowing what was coming, it did feel like. Is this the is this Neil's are to me Neil's our protagonist throughout the film. Is this happening uh, for Neil or is this happening for the audience? And that's my concern. So, well, I would. I mean, if, I want to kind of unpack Neil in the in the bigger sense because I do think that there's a lot going on in the character. But I also very quickly want to give a synopsis because we're almost an hour into this, and I just want to kind of give a quick synopsis and a little bit of context here. Uh, a new English teacher, John Keating, played by Robin Williams, is introduced to an all-boys preparatory school uh, that is known for its ancient traditions and high standards. He uses unorthodox methods to reach out to his students who face enormous pressures from their parents in the school. With Keating's help, students Neil Perry, uh, Todd Anderson, and others learn to break out of their shells, pursue their dreams, and seize the day. Dead Poets Society opened on June 2nd, 1989, against Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, No Holds Barred, See No Evil, Hear No Evil, and Field of Dreams. It would go on to make $235 million on a $16 million budget, which is just shy of around $600 million today. That's uh, unreal. It's insane uh it's got 85 percent on rotten tomatoes from critics 92 percent from audiences i'm going to read a brief part of roger ebert's two-star review dead poet society is a collection of pious platitudes masquerading as a courageous stand in favor of something doing your own thing i think it's about an inspirational unconventional english teacher and his students at the best prep school in america and how he challenges them to question conventional views by such techniques as standing on their desks it is of course inevitable that the brilliant teacher will eventually be fired from the school and when his students stood on their desk to protest his dismissal i was so moved i wanted to throw up well, I think that Roger Ebert needed John Keating as a teacher. I was, yeah. <laughs> and maybe. It doesn't sound um, like a two star review. It sounds yeah, like a one star review, right? I wanted to throw up. It's crazy. But, uh, I mean, that's then, a review that just totally missed the. That's one of those reviews where I just go, well, he didn't get it. He just didn't well, get it. It's also, it, it, it also seems like, it also seems like he, didn't want, like, he didn't want to get it. He didn't, like, he didn't want to get it. it. That's, that's if a you read the whole right review. It's, it's a lot of frustration about the classics and these. You know, obviously, these various literary legends and icons that he feels are being sort of misused and misappropriated within the course of this film, which I obviously the three of us don't agree with. It should also be said that on their Oscar nomination edition of Siskel and Ebert, both Gene Siskel and Ebert disagreed with Williams' Oscar nomination. Ebert said that he was swapped Williams with either Matt Dillon for Drugstore Cowboy or John Cusack for Say Anything. Uh, great choices. Then, Love them both. Both, both great performances. Um, but uh, on there, if we pick the winner special in March of 90, Eber chose the film's Best Picture nomination as the worst nomination of the year, believing it took a slot that could have gone to Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. I would argue Driving Miss Daisy might very well have been the worst nomination. Um, I want to just very briefly talk about other casting um, for this film. Apparently, Dustin Hoffman was going to direct this film and star in this film at one point. Uh, Tom Hanks, Bill Murray, Alec Baldwin, and Mickey Rourke were people that were all strong contenders to play John Keating. Mickey Rourke getting as close to it as saying he wouldn't do it because they wouldn't change some of the script to his choices. So, like, he was close. Mickey Rourke in this role is 
crazy to me. Um, but I mean, the Tom Hanks, Bill Murray of it all, I can maybe sort of twist myself into seeing, but I don't know. Do you guys have thoughts? I mean, on I would pick out of all of them, I would pick Dustin Hoffman. Interesting. From that list for, for as the, in the role. Yeah, I think um, I think yeah, Hoffman yeah. could have done it too. Yeah. yeah, I'm still on. I, I still can't get that review. I'm, I'm not going yeah, yeah, to. I promise to stop going back to it. But that review just made me laugh. Like I was thinking, like um, when you said, uh, you know, maybe they, you know, misused his, you know, the b- beloved poets, and you know, I was like, yeah, because there are so many movies that use W. H. Auden and get it really right. Well, you just nail it. <laughs> you know, the, like, yeah. oh yeah. <laughs> the, the hardest, the number one hardest thing. Yep. To get it, to to make a movie about and get a good review uh, on are movies about journalists because these people know everything about journalism. Mm-hmm. They live their lives in newsrooms and they know when you get it wrong. It's like how yeah. people I know who are cops can't watch cop shows and people I know who are doctors yes. can't watch yes. doctor shows. Yes. People who yeah. are lawyers can't watch lawyer shows because we yep. don't get that as writers. We we get the TV version and by the way, that's all we need to get. Yep. Um, my I'd guess be curious. is oh, sorry. My guess is Ebert uh, does have fiercely held beliefs about the classics and how they should be deployed. And if they're not deployed to his exact specifications, uh, he, you know, puts well, up he notoriously hated uh, Romeo and Juliet, the Baz Luhrmann version, because he yeah. said that it wasn't uh, true to the source material. I but think like, that you're missing is... the point. Well, I you're just like not the right guy. <laughs> I want to read his review of the history boys. Granted, the movie is not the play. If you love, right, you know, right, right. if you're going to do history boys, read it or see the play. Uh, and then, you know, see the movie. Sure. Um, but this is a similar, uh, it's, it's a similar topic, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of like, there's some thematic overlap with the history boys, which is like the one teacher who says, you know, what you, what you really need to do is find the poetry and find mm-hmm. out who you are and live your life. And sure. he's not a, he turns out not to be a likable character, uh, you know, for, for some, but, um, but his points are well taken until you <laughs> know about him. Uh, and then, um, I'm not, by the way, laughing to make light of it at all. I just sure. think that we're talking well, about a fictional that's character. Interesting, so, though. That's interesting. Um, but the other, but the other character, right? This new, you know, character, this new teacher who comes in yep. and tells the boys that, you know, what you really need to do is learn how to give them exactly what they want. And then you can fight the system from within later, you know, mm-hmm. but you got to do it successfully this way. Um, and it feels like, you know, the history boys is all about, you know, I think on the other side, on the side of the flawed teacher in many ways, but I, I'd be curious to, Oh, he's only one man, Ebert. We won't give him too much credence, but uh, but I'd be curious to know his review. I think he might be on the wrong side of the history, boys. I think he's with the teacher who thinks he should, you know, learn to get the A. Well, here's the here's um, the thing. Wait, we have to go back to Neil oh. at some point. We are oh, going to go back to just Neil. saying I just that wanna, we can't yeah, yeah, yeah. talk about that and then not. Here, the thing that uh, that now I mean, maybe I'm I'm going to tangent us too too far here, but uh, fuck okay. it. Um, <laughs> What's interesting about this and what you're talking about the history boys and what you and what what's basically happened since Dead Poet Society is a teacher like Mr. Keating, when yep. he comes into a narrative, it's almost always as a Trojan horse for some kind of nefarious guy. Um, it almost always happens like that. And what was interesting here was Keating uh he, operated in a way that I think was okay in 1989, but is not okay today. It is not okay. It's it's simply not okay to uh, tell your students, go hang out in this cave. It is not okay 
<laughs> to give your students rides places. It's not okay to sure. even sit with them at a play that's not at the school, or I would argue even sit with them, period. Um, it's just... Well, not anymore, but in 19, at a boarding school in 1958. Yes. Oh, 1960. certainly in 1950, yeah. certainly in 1958, and also in 1989. Because yeah. this, the reason it's not okay, uh, again, let me, let me, let me say this is not my opinion. This is, this is conventional wisdom at this point. It's because there have been instances of people, of, of yeah, crossing evil lines. people, yeah. uh, nefariously using cool teacher shit. To do terrible things, and I yes. Bet. If there are any high school students listening, and or, you know, and your you know, high teachers. schools, and and there's any minors, and your your teacher offers to like pick you up on the weekend and take you to a film, say no and tell say your parents no. and the school. You but know, there yes. was a period. Of, there was a period of time where that was not necessarily or obviously a terrible thing. Like I mean, I there were relationships between teachers and students at my school yeah. that were that would be considered inappropriate now that were were and are completely appropriate, right? Mm -hmm. Having a relationship where you guys play in the same fantasy football league is not in any way uh, grooming or creepy in and of itself, but you shouldn't do it. You know? So I think that that's interesting to me because at the end, remember uh, who's the bad guy? Cameron says we're the victims. This is the first time that that ever rang true to me. This yeah. is the first time where I ever thought you got the right message, yeah, but the tactics may not have been appropriate. Oh, I, I mean, I think that you know, I'm I'm uh, developing a, a project that revolves around a teacher that that myself and my co-writer um, sort of you know pitched as Keating, you know, dialed up to 11 where like seize the day is about you know basically doing drugs with kids and and really kind of pushing the boundaries of what is okay in teacher student relationships and i do think that this film toes that line you know obviously steps over it a couple times in terms of how close he is with some of these kids none of it is obviously with i think nefarious purpose but at the same time i can understand why um, the interpretation. He doesn't actually do anything wrong. I mean, I not agree. even close, in yeah, my opinion. But it's just, it's interesting that I do think in some ways this, <laughs> this is, this, this is one of those things that set up the cool teacher archetype that people went, went on to exploit. You know, we talked about this a little bit with New Waterford. Right. Yep. Waterford yeah, yeah. Girl. Yes, we did. Which yeah. has a, which, which has a cool teacher who winds up, you know, statutory raping one of his students. Um, and, uh, well, Statutorily, oh, they never they sex. never they go never all the sex. way. Yeah, statutorily kissing one of his students, sexually assaulting one of his students, and uh, yeah, we talked about this. And this is this is a trope up the movies today. You know, as I said on that on that episode in um in Booksmart, one of the teachers, the cool teach, goes to the party with them and and stands idly by while kids are drinking and smoking. Yeah. It's well, we see it in election too. I mean, that was that sort of yeah. You know, oh, God. <laughs> but. In election, at least. In election, at least. No, I love that movie. I love that presented. movie. It's, I was just thinking pre- about the scene between. The, I was just yeah. thinking about the scene at his yeah. house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. presented for what it is. It's presented as. Yeah. It's. I love that movie. It's so brilliant. It's so fucking layered. It's the best. Uh, it's <laughs> I often present- refer to myself as Tracy Flick, but without the Machiavellian intentions. <laughs> just to help she, people know me really quickly, had, right off the bat. No, <laughs> she. She had no choice. Yeah. She had no choice. She had to yeah. be Machiavelli. 
Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I want I, I want to just uh, uh, there's two quick things that, that that I wanted to tap into before we get back to Neil. Um, yes. Both are about the script. We are actually going to uh, be interviewing Tom Shulman, uh and we're going to tack that onto the end of this episode. So hopefully we'll get a little bit more uh, insight into these two things in terms of the development of the script and some of the notes that came in came from Disney and what have you. But in the early, I can't ver- wait to listen to that. In the early version of the script. Keating had been ill and was slowly dying of Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, and that the movie would end with him dying. Um, Now, I don't know if that was in concert with the Neil suicide or if Keating's character was to become sort of more of the focus and more of the central character of the film. Um, Again, don't have answers to that. And hopefully Tom will be able to to shed some light on that. Uh, I Personally, I'm glad that didn't happen. Oh, so um, glad. Because I, I don't, I just don't want to see. And there's just a part of me that feels like the the power of this film, and it's what Kenny and we've all been talking about up until this point, is in the perspective of the students and how Keating is affecting them rather than us. Like Keating is is ultimately a metaphor in so many ways, right? Like Keating is is sort of a vessel for these kids rather than him well, he's being. A, he's a, a catalyst, right? Right. But it um, also, as a yeah. character, robs him of his moral courage and right, conviction. Right. Right. It it's all easy feels to do. Like, well, as I'm Congress, die. it's yeah, easy to yeah. do anything when you're dying or not running for re-election. Right. <laughs> you know, exactly. that's not courage. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other the other thing that I think is worth. Uh, talking about is that apparently early notes from uh, on the script from Disney suggested making the boys' passion dancing rather than poetry, and suggested a new title, Sultans of Swing, which oh, focused God. the character. Uh, uh, <laughs> so yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, listen, we're all thankful that we didn't get Sultans of Swing, um, but I, I do think that it's interesting that you read this script and your takeaway is is not look at the power of. The spoken word and the power of the written word. I know. Could you imagine? <laughs> it should be dancing. <laughs> You're like, what? I, I wonder if that's they thought that poetry was too sophisticated, too inaccessible, Maybe. too hard to express the passion of, like too hard to film in a way that would be interesting. It's not active. It is inactive. Maybe too static. So is what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah but yeah, it. Uh, <laughs> hey, you know. Yeah, it, exactly. It's, it, <laughs> the thing is, and I, I the thing is, yeah. That's not a bad idea. Uh, it's, it, it, no, in and of itself, yeah, it's no, not I would a bad idea. Did we get Swing Kids? Also, I think we got Swing Kids. Also, we got Swing Kids. Also is yeah. the answer. Exactly. Also, it, it, yeah. Also, it doesn't, yeah. it's not, you know, it's not an either or situation. Yeah. But yes, to, to, to have robbed us of this in order to only make that <laughs> would have been a trap. I also, uh, one last thing, apparently, and again, very curious to hear what Thomas has say about this. There was a sequel that was potentially planned that was going to focus on Todd's character following in the footsteps of Keating um, because, yeah, they thought that was a good idea. Um, I don't know if that's real or not. I don't know if that's rumor, conjecture, what have you. Glad we didn't get that film because I don't really know what that movie is. Um, it's No, it's, no one wants to watch Sounding His Barbaric Yop, the Todd Anderson story. It's called Yop. That's the <laughs> yeah, name of it. Yop. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's a good uh, I, 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 why would that be a bad movie well I, I have my opinion on why that would be a bad movie okay my feeling is yeah. um, this movie is is 
made in the last half an hour. Right, uh, right, 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 right. This, yes. this, and and the whole movie is is really fantastic and extremely watchable. It moves very fast and it builds to that last half hour really nicely. But this movie is made in uh, what happens to Robert Sean Leonard, and then what in the fallout and the O Captain moment, and any attempt to try to recreate that or God forbid top it would be as bad as life gets. So um, would be as bad as the never ending story too. Yeah. <laughs> the, the still going story. Still going story. Yeah, I mean I agree with you Kenny. It's it's to me it's like and and we'll talk about the final scene, you know, when we get to it, but uh yeah, you're not going to do better than that. I mean they knew it in I mean they knew it in the editing. They knew it in, I'm assuming they were just like, well, we're like we have to leave here. Like this is where you're this is I, it's, it's, the, the, it's a perfect have, ending. Have any of you had the misfortune of sitting through the Evening Star? <laughs> no. Okay. The sequel to Terms of Endearment. Terms of Endearment. Yes, mm-hmm. that 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 is your answer. Why a movie like this should <laughs> never be sequelized? Yeah, fair fair point. So uh, I want to talk about Neil for a second, and I actually have a question for you, uh, Rochelle, because I feel like watching it this time, um, what really hit me was Neil's love of acting um, and how palpable that was for me at the end of this film. You know, I've done very, very little acting. I was, I was in a couple musicals at summer camp um, and, and loved the experience, but would never want to be an actor for a myriad of reasons. We don't need to get into them, but the moment when Neil uh, is pushed forward uh, at the curtain call and everyone applauds for him. And then, the turnaround and the curtains behind him and just that joy and that euphoria that he's feeling in that moment. Mm-hmm. This, this really is, I think, as Kenny said, it is Neil's story, but it's also about Neil like blossoming into the person that he wants to be, finding his voice, finding his passion, um, realizing that he was put on this earth to do this thing. As an actor, I'm wondering whether or not this film had that sort of a power on you to some degree. Did, did Neil's, did that part of Neil's story really speak to you? Yeah, it did. And I think that answering that question what might actually answer, uh, be my response to Kenny's question as well, which is like, you know, did the film earn it just on Neil right. alone? Right. Um, and I, I think that I love the film for what it doesn't say. Uh, what it doesn't make explicit, but what I, I as an actor know and what anybody who knows an actor or even just listens to the cliches about mm-hmm. sort of artists, right? Yeah. Which is that in choosing acting as the thing that makes him come alive, right? Yeah. He didn't fall in love with chemistry and there's nothing wrong with chemistry <laughs> and I'm sure it can be romantic, right? right? But like he didn't fall in love with chemistry. It's a certain personality and the artistic personality lives. This is a character who is constantly swallowing all of who he is, yeah. right? What he's holding down is uh, is is a level five whitewater rapid, right? In terms of what wants to come out of him. And right. you watch him, there's a couple of beautiful scenes where uh, Robert Charlotte is so good in this, he's where so he does the sort of sad eyes and the sort of, and the smile where his eyes are saying, my life is over and this is the mm-hmm, word and this mm-hmm. is miserable. Please can it end? And his mouth is smiling to say like, I know you mean well, dad and sure we'll do it your way. Right. And 
So for me, Neil is a character who's like, well, he falls in love with acting because he's so emotional. He's sensitive. He wants to be alive. He's like lives close to the surface, right? What's going on inside him finally finds a voice and he finally realizes that he can live fully. And there's this great line before he, um, right before he kills himself when they're in the office, when his dad tells him he's going to military school and then he's going to be a doctor. Yeah, but that's 10 and more he doesn't years. say, yeah. yeah, he says that's like, that's 10 more yeah, years. It's a prison he doesn't sentence. say, yeah. I don't want to go to fucking military academy. It's too strict. I don't want to be in the yeah. army. I don't want to have to go to war, right? He doesn't want to say, I have no interest in medicine. I have no interest in being a doctor. I actually want to be a lawyer or do this other thing. He doesn't say, there's so many responses he could have and so many ways in which he could define what he really wants for his life. And what he says is, that's 10 more years. And so immediately what you realize is this is a character who has been waiting to live. Yeah. 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 I hear that. He's been waiting to live. I just got to get through and then I will be on my own and I can do what I want. I won't live in my father's house anymore and all that comes with that. And so I think they earn his death because he can't be the sensitive, full, fully alive human being that he is. He's not living anyway. So I think for Neil, the logic is like, well, I'm already dead and I've been waiting to live. And I yeah. just found out, actually, that's never going to happen. This yeah. is why you're the champ. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask, a, I have a question and, and forgive me if this feels, I don't know, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but I'll forgive you, you for think, anything and everything. Do you think <laughs> that there's something to Neil potentially being gay? I, I did think that. I did I, wonder this that. time I watched the film and definitely felt like there was something there was and th- there was something else going on. The way that he interacts with the other guys, not in a sexual way, but the way they talk about women and Neil doesn't seem to be a part of that conversation really. You sort of mm-hmm. know what I'm getting I at? noticed that. I, yeah. I think what's interesting about that question following up what Rochelle just said yeah. is as Rochelle was talking, I was thinking, well, no, this, it, it's irrelevant whether or not he's gay. Yeah, totally. What's important. Yeah, it's just another reason he can't be himself. No, but uh, for, yeah. forget it. Forget sexuality yeah. altogether. Uh, what's important is it follows the same trajectory as being closeted in a family that right, doesn't accept right. you for who you are. So right. even if, you know, even though it's not explicit in, in, in my opinion, in any way, yeah, I, I think someone who is queer and does feel like they were raised in a family that didn't accept them and never would mm-hmm. could identify with Neil's arc, even though it is not explicitly about sexuality. It's a, it's a metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that group, I, I, by I the way, with, that yeah. group of people has the highest suicide rate of any group of people, I sure. believe. Sure. Well, sure, they do. Sure. Yeah. It, so. It's. I think that to, to sort of tap into what both of you were saying, and, and it's why I think Neil's character and arc is so tragic, is, um, and, and I do think is why it's the most powerful sort of metaphor for the film, is not being able to be the person that you think you were put on this earth, earth to be. That idea that someone or something or circumstances are, uh, are suppressing or sublimating the person that you think you're destined to be is just, you know, the, the most tragic thing. 
Yeah, and being an actor for him, you know, I know a lot of artists who talk this way about, I remember having conversations with friends in college who would tell me that, they were so, you know, adults, grownups would tell you, you know, oh, God, what a hard job. And why would you want to choose something where, you know, 0.1% of the people succeed? Right. And, you know, all the reasonable adults in the room would mm-hmm. be like, you know, well, you don't want to do that with your life, right? You won't, yep. couldn't possibly be successful. And I remember so many of my friends being so, like, really envious that I felt I had a calling, a purpose, that I knew at least one piece of who I was meant to be. Like, I didn't know everything, but I knew that. I knew at least what I wanted to do. And I remember having conversations with friends where the through line was like, the fact that I don't know what I want to do with my life is not the problem, right? I'll figure it out. I'll figure out how to make money. I'll get a job. The what the problem is that the fact that I don't know what I want to do with my life is indicative of the fact that I don't know who the fuck I am. And yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. terrifying. Yeah, yeah. It's terrifying to be 20 and being sent out into the world any minute now, and you still don't know who you are and what you are meant to be doing with the life force that's in you. And so when you do have that, it's so strong. Mm-hmm. And it's so, you know, so I, I do think that that sense of like purpose. No, I agree. And, and you I don't know, know why I, I went on that rant. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I mean, I think I speak, I mean, I don't want to speak for you guys. I'll just speak for myself, but just saying how lucky I feel to get to do what I get to do with my life. I mean, it's one thing to say, I want to do this thing. I meant to do this thing. It's another to actually get to have a career doing it and to build a life doing it. Um, that that's, you know, that those, especially in the business and in the industry that we work in, um, it's incredibly difficult. And, you know, I, I think that, uh, it's, it's part of why this movie, I think was so certainly so powerful for me watching it yesterday of just seeing this character that um, just wants a chance, right? Mm -hmm. Like he just wants to try, like let him try. And if he fails, that's, you know, or maybe he succeeds. I mean, that's why, you know, the performance is so, eh, so tragic to watch as well, because he's really good. Right. Like you can just see he that, like, says that too. Like yeah. all his self-worth is in yeah. that moment. He's like mm-hmm. tearful and he says, yeah. I was, I was really, really good. good. Yeah. It's like the first like, time he's ever liked himself. Totally. You know? Like as much as like it's a nice moment when uh, Charlie Dalton turns to, to Keating during the performance is like, he's really good. It's yeah. like, I don't need you to say it. Like, I know he's really good, but like yeah. he's really good. And you can see that this is the destiny of this character, the destiny of this person, and that he feels so alive on that stage. Um, yeah, it's it's just, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. I want to just, there's a couple things I want to jump through the plot quickly, but I just... Um, I want to talk about Ethan Hawke for a second, who mm. is really good in this film. It's one of his first mm-hmm. performances. Um, apparently, he was uh, notoriously hard on Robin Williams and was annoyed by Robin Williams always cracking wise between takes, <laughs> which feels right, uh, considering the Ethan Hawke that we know today. A 12-year-old um, Ethan Hawke. <laughs> but I love that like this. And then Ethan Hawke apparently gets an agent at at, I'm assuming CAA, because Robin Williams suggests him. So it's like, Robin Williams didn't give a shit that, like, this young kid was like, but I just think that's a perfect, you know, whatever. I love um, that. I, I, I love the fact that the first shot of Robin Williams in the film, which is five minutes into the movie, he's immediately got this twinkle in his eye, that, like, mischievous Robin Williams look, where you're just like, you just, you know the ride you're in for, and it's just like, I don't know. He's just, 
I miss him. I miss performances mm-hmm. like this from him. Kenny and I have talked about his, his 299 performances well, of Bicentennial Man and Jacob the Liar notwithstanding. <laughs> uh, this, this is always the Robin Williams that, that works for me. Right. Funny Robin Williams doesn't really work for me. And <laughs> manic Robin Williams doesn't really work for me. But Robin Williams, he taps into that part of himself yeah. that uh, – that necessitates that other part, um, other parts okay. existence is what I, I, I love and miss. So this and good. Yeah. It's, it's the restraint. I mean, my I, favorite I feel performance, like this- world's greatest dad. I did. She's just, <laughs> Oh no, it's not a joke. I know. It's I know. an incredible I've never, movie. I've never seen it. I just not love father's day. World's greatest dad, an incredible film. Um, I, that- I, I, I do think it's interesting though. Cause it does feel like, this is the performance that I feel is always referred to when a comedic actor tries to go dramatic. Like when, you know, when Jim Carrey or Tom Hanks or any number of people tried that transition, this is always sort of the film that people point to and, 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 and I, as sort of a, a, you know, a fulcrum point where like Robin Williams understood, like I, I vividly remember, I don't know if you do, Kenny, but when The Truman Show was, was, was about to come out, also directed by Peter Weir, and starring Jim Carrey, everyone was just like, is this going to be Jim Carrey's Dead Poets Society? Is this going to mm-hmm. be the movie, you know, Peter Weir did it for Robin Williams, you know, can he do it for Jim Carrey as well? Um, I just think there's something interesting to that, that kind of, as, as you sort of were alluding to, Kenny, this idea that like Robin Williams probably read this script and was like, I can do this and I know what gear, I know I have this gear. Uh, and I, I think he beautifully does it. Sorry, Kenny? I have thoughts. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> Share them. <laughs> Speaking of this, mysterious glint in their eye, mysterious this, glint in their well, eye, it, 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 goes, it goes back to, to my, my, favorite, my favorite little pet noir category fraud. <laughs> um, people got the wrong idea of what he was doing in this film. He is not the star. He is not Truman. It's not the same kind of role. So it's above the it, title. That's why that's, they. I that, mean, that's a marketing I, I know, but that's, you understand why. Yes, that's what I'm telling you. That's what yes. I'm telling you. He's above the title. He obviously got paid more. He's obviously the biggest star. He's obviously the reason it made $250 million at the box office. Uh, and he was nominated for Best Actor. But people got the wrong idea. Yeah. I need to go find my Dead Poet Society. Well, no, that's not what you need to go find. That's not what he did here. He found an ensemble that he can fit into really well. When when Robin Williams has tried to be the, the center of a dramatic film, with the exception of The World's Greatest Dad, it's failed miserably, like Jacob the Liar. It's just not – not to say that actors can't do it, not to – you know, I, I think Lost in Translation is one of the greatest fucking movies ever made with one of the greatest performances of all time. It can happen, but that's not what he did here. So it's just it's it's it probably led to a dozen misunderstandings of what totally it means true. to trans transition from comedy to drama mm-hmm. and how not everybody can do it. Well, yeah, it's, he also, it's, but as sorry, an actor, ahead, he sorry. also did. Yeah, as an actor, he also did two things. As as the uh, you know, as the acting expert, um, <clears throat> as the actor, know, as an on actor, here. Yeah, yeah. as Tour. an actor on here, as one actor in of 80, 80 million here in Los Angeles, um, he 
he also he did two things (laughs) he did two things um that were that were technically brilliant that i want to give him credit for um Mm -hmm. which is he didn't stop doing the things that were alive in him, right? So he didn't like, like one of the reasons why I, I'm so loath to watch a lot of comedians do sort of quote unquote straight is I feel mm-hmm. like they st- stood in front of the mirror and went, I have to turn it off, right? And they like turn the volume all the way down. And so they just look sort of like half alive. Like it doesn't, it's not dramatic. Dramatic is fully alive, right? It's all the, of what's in you. And so Robin Williams did not turn the comedy off. It's in there in spades. I'm sure there's so much improv. I'm, I'll be curious to hear, you know, what was scripted, what was, um, what was improv. Um, so he allowed it. So that was the first thing was he knew he had that instinct where he was like, I can't be dead inside. I have to be fully alive. And I, this is part of me being alive is this humor. And then, he picked the humor selectively that was appropriate for the kinds of jokes and the kinds of humor and the kind of timing that Keating would have had. It felt specific. It wasn't like every now and then a little Robin Williams bubbled up. It was, it was perfectly woven into the character. And that is something I think a lot of people miss. My uh, guess is that film. there's hours of footage. <laughs> that did oh, the hours! Movie. Oh, oh, I bet. Oh, yeah, of him for just sure. sticking it up to like a hundred and fifty. <laughs> it also, like I, everything, uh, yes, everything you said. It also like gives you a little. He had one of one of the, the scenes that I think is the, is the reason I actually love this movie and his performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's small, but you know, I always do kind of roll my eyes at Robin Williams movies because I can't just be slathered with shtick. Yeah. And when what's the character's name? The the cool guy when Dalton, Dalton. Uh, Charlie mm-hmm. Dalton when yeah. Charlie Dalton makes the joke in church and gets reprimanded for it and he comes back in and he's basically like look there's a time and a place you know you could have made a better joke but there's a time and a place yeah. uh I think that's what you're you're saying essentially. He let us behind the curtain yeah. a little bit and says there's a, there is a time and a place. And I think that's why Robin Williams, the real human being, was so beloved because he wasn't always Robin Williams, the one you got on Jay Leno's couch, Letterman's couch, who I thought was just too much, exhausting. Uh, it's just exhausting. And I know he was doing what he was, you know, would put on this earth to do to some extent, but uh, it was just too much. So I and then to your other point, Rochelle about. Um, the actress who turned it off. Yeah, that's that's misunderstanding their own persona, misunderstanding their own uh, the the what they put out into the world already. Like I think the guy right now for me is you know who does this the best is Adam Sandler, and Adam Sandler doesn't ever stop playing the Adam Sandler character. He's just playing a no. different version of it and he's not turning it, toning it down. It's just Adam Sandler in a different situation that calls for a different kind of Adam Sandler. Right, but he fits himself into it. Like I loved Spang, like I loved him in Spanglish, you know? Cause he was like, <laughs> I, I did, I did. I just thought he was like, like he was, a, you had, it was a good, it was just so like, it was like miscast, brutally, brutally miscast and then totally won me over because I was like, well, at least he's uh-huh. not pretending to be someone else. At least he's not trying to do. He's at least he's not it. trying he does to do this other thing. It's a disaster, thing. but he, occasionally yeah. he does, and it anyway, really, it really breaks <laughs> I, me. It upsets me. But whenever sure. he's playing a version of himself, 
Uh, I am totally, and I mean, Phil and I did Grown Ups too. On we did do Grown Ups too. Happily, happily, true, truly, happily, Madison podcast, and I think yep. we both loved it. And in part, it was because he's such a grounded performance. <laughs> he does. I, you know, I do think it's interesting because it does feel like there's kind of. I guess there's four, forgive me, there might be more, but the four that come to mind are Adam Sandler, Tom Hanks, Jim Carrey, Robin Williams. Like those feel like the four kind of, you know, big, huge comedians that found lanes for themselves outside. And Bill of, Murray. I would and Bill Murray, the, of course, sure. It is interesting because Kenny and I were talking about the, uh, we were texting about this the other day, uh, about the Memoirs of an Invisible Man podcast uh, on Blank Check that they're doing with about Chevy Chase. And how Chevy Chase just like careened right into a brick wall and and essentially, you know, couldn't find that other gear or chose not to, whatever the case might be. It's just interesting when you see, because I, I, again, we're looking at it as a finished product. I don't know what it's like to sculpt these films in the editing room. I, you know, I've heard stories of, uh, Eternal Sunshine being the type of performance that was sculpted in a lot of ways in the editing room, which I could see perhaps, maybe, don't know. Ooh. But I, I'm just, I love the movie. I'm not, I'm not, and I'm not shitting on the performance. Well, but wait, I'm just, you know, oh, I'll oh, let you sorry. finish. And then no, I, my, my point more than anything was just, I think it's really interesting when a filmmaker sees something in these, in these comedians yeah, or in it. these performers and says, I think that I can tell a thing through this. I mean, uncut gems, maybe being one of the, the most, you know, the best examples of it, of being like, you or know, punch drunk love or punch drunk love, where it's just like, yeah. I can take this persona and you, you don't really need to do much in terms of modulation. We're just going to put it in a different context and it's going to change the entire way that we perceive what you do. But what were you going to say, Rochelle? Oh, I was just going to say that, um, yeah, it's interesting. It's for some reason, the thing, uh, the, the, you know, that performance was made in the editing room yeah. has become, uh, this like a, like a criticism that. Right. That that sounds, and I know, I I, know I didn't you mean didn't it to mean sound it denigrating in, to the performance. I know, I know, I know you didn't, but I I uh, I know you didn't, and also it just made <laughs> me want to say um, that there are there are lots of um, I've read lots of you know interviews, directors, and things like that where they talk about like you know revered dramatic actors where the performance is made in the exactly. editing room. You know, everything in a movie. It's made in the yeah, editing for sure, room. For sure, That's for sure. how movies are made. Yeah. No, and 100%. so yeah. there's also this part of the process where it's like, um, and I think, yeah, to what you're saying about, you know, the director going, I can use this raw material. I know mm-hmm. how to sort of channel this. I'll get, I bet that part of the conversation for those directors internally is going, well, fine. If it goes too far one way or the other, I'll just cut it out. And I'll just, you know, we'll have four hours and I'll sit in the editing room and I'll make a great, you know, two hour or just under two hour movie. Um, and this idea of just embracing that as being part of a person's process, you know, and I knowing agree. that that's just going to yeah. have to happen. Yeah. So I'm going to yeah. put you on the spot, but you have a, you have a, a escape hatch if you want it. Yeah. When you said that uh, you sometimes don't like watching tr- uh, comedic actors try their hand at drama because they, you know, they mute themselves or whatever it is. Uh, were you thinking about someone in particular? And feel free <laughs> to punt. I will go first if you want. Jim Carrey and the Majestic. Sure. Ouch. Sure. Uh, I, I mean, Jim. I, I mean, I, look, I feel like I, a, I have I, a guy who I I, I don't feel. 
I live in a glass house, friend. Like I don't want to. You know what I, I mean? That's why I wanted like, to give you the escape hatch. The escape. The the escape hatch because I know that and but and plus. I'm a wild man. I'll say anything, but uh, also Jim Carrey can. Ha- Jim Carrey doesn't care that I think about he what can, I. He, yes. he doesn't care what, but whether or not I think he was good in the Majestic. Um, but I say that with all due respect for a brilliant comedian. But it is an example to me of someone whose director needed to tell them the point is not to just not make jokes and be constrained and restrained. The point is to show up fully yourself. We want everything that's in you. Right. Just don't make jokes. Just say that, you know what I mean? Just don't yeah. go off the rails. Just don't. There was something that went amiss there that I, it was hard to watch because I felt like I was watching someone who had their personality tied behind their back in a way that was really uncomfortable. When I think that, I mean, of, of the four people that we're talking about, I think that Jim Carrey was probably the quote unquote least successful in terms of monetarily so. I mean, Eternal Sunshine and Truman Show aside, I think he tried to do dramatic stuff, The Majestic being an example of that, where and to come back to what Kenny was saying, uh, a misinterpretation of what Robin Williams was doing in this film. I, I think those four guys and five, if you include Bill Murray, are yeah. the, you know the the five extremely they they were they've been extremely successful at this. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, just extremely successful at, at figuring that that thing out. The guy who I think, and I don't think it's necessarily his fault. I just think he hasn't found the director who can unlock it. Or maybe can I too- can I ask wait can I ask a question though like I also feel like the fact that there are a few a handful of people who are brilliant comedians who can also be brilliant dramatic actors right. this is like comparing horses to unicorns and going you're not a good <laughs> horse if you can't be a unicorn and this is not because right. I feel self conscious and I want to defend Jim Carrey <laughs> because he doesn't need defending but he's a brilliant. Sorry. Comedian. Course. And like, oh, you know, sorry. you watch him do Andy Kaufman, and you're like, the guy's a genius. Yeah, like, not, he has that was 99. Nothing. He was amazing. He's, in Man on the wait, he, yeah. he has nothing to prove to any of us. And yet we have this strange expectation. Like if I gave the dramatic performance of a lifetime, right? No one would ever be on a podcast being like, yeah, but can she do comedy? Well, yeah, you know, like but, but, it's just we don't we don't expect it to go the other way. But for some reason, as a comedian, you're not like the the the, the yeah the, the the gauge of your talent is can you cross over? Like that's I don't just think, a conversation. No, I, that, I don't think that's. I don't think it's a conversation saying. we're having, but I think it no, is. No, I don't even think it is a conversation that happens. We're not I, having I, it. But yeah, yeah. yeah, no, yeah. I think we're we're talking about you know five of the biggest stars of all time, and I think uh, right. and I think I, I think it's a natural thing. To see to, to ask if they can do things outside of you know, for lack of a better term, their comfort zone. It does right. go the other way. We watched She Devil this year, and we talked about you know how Meryl Streep can do whatever she so wants, okay. you know, in in any genre. And I think yes. Meryl Streep probably challenges herself to take on roles that are out of you know what may be perceived as her comfort zone. And and there are some dramatic actresses I'll throw one out there: Nicole Kidman, who has not had a lot of success. In comedy. Um, and I don't think it really dampens her star. It's just a thing. And again, she's Nicole Kidman. She's on the Mount Rushmore of female actors of the last, you know, 20th century and, uh, or the la- of, of the 21st century. And that's what it is. Yeah. Um, I want to say my guy. And I yeah, think who's your guy? Sorry, Kenny. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. the five people we're talking about are, if you said they were the five most successful comedic actors of the last 40 years, I think. 
there's, there's, I don't think you'd have much of an argument, give or take an Eddie Murphy, uh, a guy who never really had a great success crossing over to drama. But the guy I'm thinking of is Will Ferrell, who would also be on that list, who has tried, who's clearly shown a desire, and who for whatever reason, and, and the weirdest thing about it is his collaborator has had two Oscar-nominated films that could be called dramas. Um, right. and the, he, he's never really been, no one's ever really been able to crack what that thing looks like when it's dramatic. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's, it's not Will Ferrell's fault necessarily, because it's not like everything must go or whatever yeah. the, or everything the, um, yeah. or, or the Woody Allen movie, Melinda, Melinda were, were or the, great uh, films. Strange of the Fiction. Strange of the Fiction. Uh, it's not like these were incredible vehicles for him, but they—they've they, never really—he's he's never really been able to crack it. He's the the guy I'm thinking of, uh, who is a comedic actor with a a well defined comedic persona, mm. who has really not uh, been able to to crack what that thing look, looks like when you flip that coin. I'd say the only other person, and we we'll get off this topic, but I just I think it's worth talking about the other person that comes to mind is Will Smith. To some degree, who I think has, mm-hmm. I think he's different. I do, I I agree. I mm. wanted to just bring it up because it does feel like he's a guy who straddles that that universe in a lot of ways. Sometimes more successfully than others, um, but started in comedy, um, and you know found a way to I transition into, into more dramatic stuff too. I think yeah, Will I think that's Smith a great is example. Uh, different. Because Will Smith didn't come to us from SNL uh, or right, some right, right. or stand up. Will Smith came to us from music. Um, you know, he was already right. a big star before that. And then his first feature performance was Six Degrees of Separation, yeah. which is a dramatic yeah. as they come. It's a stage yeah. play. Mm-hmm. So he, I, the man is a unicorn, you know that. Yeah. Like he, yeah. he, 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 he just was, he kind of was 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 born that way. I mean, the the guy that'll be interesting because I think he's dying to do it and break out is Kevin Hart. Um, is like I could tell yeah. that he's just dying to be taken seriously. You know, he, he made that trailer film, for his Netflix thing. He did. He did uh, the Untouchables. Untouchables remake with Brian Cranston. Yeah. And you never know who it's going to be. I mean, we're in a world where Simon Rex is going to get an Oscar nomination this year. You never know who the person is going to be. So and I love that. I want to. I want to pivot Andrew, back to the Andrew Dice yeah, Clay go was amazing. Andrew Dice want- Clay was amazing in two films, two dramatic films. So you never know. You never know. Uh, I do want to uh, pivot back to Dead Poets Society because I want to talk about the the scene that I think is probably, I mean, there's a bunch of iconic scenes in this film, but the Seize the Day scene, which is his first, mm-hmm. um, I, I guess you would say classroom scene, which is he walks into the classroom and he says, let's get out of the classroom. And he takes them into the sort of the foyer and he has them look at these old photos of uh old students from from Welton that are no longer on this earth um, and how uh, he should listen to their whispers from the great beyond saying seize the day carpe diem. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a beautiful little piece of foreshadowing when he's talking about how, you know, one day they're all going to die and the camera is straight on Neil talking about how one day you will turn cold and die. Um, and it's, 
it's a really powerful scene for a bunch of reasons. And I think that one of the reasons that this film works so well for, I mean, arguably for kids and for adults is that as a kid, you're looking at it and thinking about the, the, the potential, right? Like anything's possible with my life. I, I, there's all sorts of things that I can do. Um, and then looking backwards on this film and being, did I accomplish all the things that I wanted to accomplish with my life? Um, not to say that we are, you know, old and gray, but I do think that there's something, uh, it's just a really, really beautiful scene. And I don't know. I mean, I'm assuming it worked for you guys. I mean, how could it not? But Oh, so much so. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. dude, I love I love that scene. Yeah, and it had the same effect. It made me it made me feel like I had time left. You know, like what am, I have time left. Right. What am I doing? Right. What am I doing with the time that's left? You know, like I could still be. I'm not. I'm not in high school, but I still, you know, God willing, got some years left in me. And so, what, you know, what am I doing yeah. with that? And yeah, I, I think that I, I think that this film does something really interesting, and I'm I'm excited to talk to to Tom about it. But th- there's an organizing principle to it in a lot of ways. Of each of these classes, lessons, lectures, well, whatever you want to say, all of them kind of come at something in a different way that I think is really interesting. That his you know his his second class is about tearing out the introduction. Um, and and how ridiculous it is to, you know, American bandstand poetry, um, you know, this idea of of ranking art, which is something that Kenny and I talk about a lot. You know, we talk obviously about the Oscars. We love to we rank about, art. We love to rank art. Um, but, you know, again, it's it's entirely subjective. Uh, but that speech that he gives when he, he says, he asks the students to crowd around him and he's sort of crouching down in the middle of the classroom talking about, the power of poetry and contributing your verse to the world. Mm-hmm. And what are you going to contribute? Um, it's just all really, I mean, it's just, it's goosebump stuff. It's stuff that just makes you feel like anything's possible. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ranking We're both art. nodding for people who aren't watching <laughs> yeah, video. Like, Ray, well, ranking, <laughs> who are, I mean, who are like, listening. We're both Kenny I, I, and I, I like, yeah. It's, I, th- I think about it all the time because, like, as someone who kind of, you know, what went hand in hand with my love of movies yes. was my love of ranking and listing and awarding <laughs> movies. And that, uh, I, I it, it's, it's like I live in two different realities. Like, the one reality where, like, I, Still, I'm obsessed with the Oscars, and still, I'm obsessed with the year-end list, and still, I'm obsessed with the canification of 
um, films and performances and all that stuff. And the other hand, which is like truly disgusted by it and uh, really think it, you know, causes people to view art and view film in particular in, uh, in a way that is not um, engaging with the material. It's really just engaging with the way that the culture at large will view the material. Uh, I, I think I can hold both things at the same time. I, I, I do. I, I try to hold both of these things at the same time. Like on one hand, it's a horse race. That's fun, which is why I, I love, I love, uh, Sports. Kind of pro- well, no, I love prognosticating Oscars having not seen <laughs> the movies because it has nothing to do with whether the movies are good or not. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a game. Yeah. And on the other hand, you know, love the movies that I love, but yeah, mm-hmm. that it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing the idea of objective good and objective bad when it comes to art you know there obviously is none but I think our society has really tried to sell the idea that there is It, I, it makes I, me I think agree. of oh go ahead Yeah no please 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 yeah Oh the um you know that scene you're talking about you know that you may contribute a verse he's like got them all there and the same thing about he's whispering you know carpe diem boys and that all that um the thing I remember actually um having the thought while I was watching it and I was going you know I want this to be a movie from 1989 that we don't need anymore. Like, I want this to be quaint, right? I want it to be like, remember? Remember when we needed movies to tell us to have souls, not just brains? Remember when we needed movies to tell us to seize the day and love poetry and be ourselves fully? And like, and I, I just, I was sort of sad for a moment because I was thinking about like, you know, look, I live in LA and it's, you know, my kids go to very progressive schools. And so I can't say that I know what a generalized sort of, you know, American education is right now. Um, cause I do live in a bit of a progressive bubble. Um, but I did wonder, it's like, you know, what happens in, you know, a traditional American high school in, you know, I say this affectionately, anywheresville, USA, right? What happens right. when a teacher comes in and takes the boys and tells them, you know, that they need to embrace poetry and makes them write their own poems and they stand up and they read them and tells them they have a yop in them. Like, and I, I didn't want to be sad for the amount of cynicism and rejection and toss and like the toxic masculinity that would present itself both in the boys themselves and possibly the parents and hearing upon this. Like I, I really just compared it to what the, the kind of sort of lack of discourse and the way that we communicate now and how we treat each other. And I just go, we need this movie now more than ever. There actually isn't any poetry in how we're living or treating each other or communicating right now and what would happen in a high school if there was a John Keating, I think he would still be a John Keating. I don't think he would be just your average American teacher and, you know, and might still get fired for corrupting young minds. I mean, look at what we're dealing with right now with like, you know, CRT and any number of things that people are are, are up in arms about. So let's, I I, want to kind of take it a step further because you... You could make my my. I, I've made this argument before. It's I kind of make it half tongue in cheek, but I also believe it to some extent <laughs> that you can really make a film about anything now. There's almost no need for subtext because or allegory because yeah. you can put it all on Front Street. Not to say you should, but you know the the reason for allegory is because you were not allowed to say things before. Now that you are. Uh-huh. You're just showing off. Um, 
No, that's obviously not 100% true. And there's, you know, but just deal with me. I'm not convinced you could make this movie anymore because the, not from a like who would go see it or it's to this or do that. The, the one thing that I do think people get up in arms about is telling you how to think. It's telling you that there's a right way to think or a right way to do things. That's what people are so fucking up in arms about CRT. Right. It's so I think that a, a, it's one of the reasons I, and we know <laughs> there's, there's, I think sure. That's what, the, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's yeah. what it is. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but yes, I think that there is this idea of like, how dare you tell us what we've learned and how we've mm-hmm. learned mm-hmm. what we believe to be true and what worked for us is no longer true. Yep. And I think if you had it, I think CRT is a really good point, though. I think if you had a show cause this would never be a movie, but it, if you had a show, mm-hmm where a teacher came in and as earnestly and as persuasively and charismatically as John Keating started teaching about uh, CRT, people would fucking riot. Fox News would would spend every hour. Tucker Carlson would do dissertations Mm -hmm. every night on why why parents should show up at school board meetings Mm -hmm. to get this teacher fired. And yes. In a way that people in a way that people don't write about pose in a way that people don't freak out about, you know, uh, us in a way that people don't freak about freak out about Watchmen in a way that people don't freak out about squid game or any of this stuff it is like it would be lunacy Lunacy. and that's and that's kind of what i was getting at at the beginning which is like i appreciate the boldness of putting your thoughts out there like like just out there plainly Mm -hmm. in a society that is so resistant to hearing what i learned in school or what i learned from my parents or what i believe to be true is not true um that's it that's my rant. It's, I mean, I think it's, I, I, I don't disagree with anything either of you are saying. I think that it, it is interesting that this film feels, uh, you know, quaint in its own way. And yet at the same time, still radical. Like mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it is, and, and that's sad. I mean, we, we, it is that I agree with you, Rochelle, if, especially if I had kids, I imagine I would watch this film and it, it's, it's got, you know, it's it's a powerful film in a myriad of ways, but that's a subtextual thing that exists, unfortunately. Um, and it feels as though we've weirdly regressed in a lot of ways uh, over the last, certainly over the last few years, how how parents have been weaponized, certainly on the right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, it's uh, it's it's very scary. Um, I I I think it's 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 interesting how I was watching. Um, I don't know if you guys watch the circus on Showtime. This it's a half hour uh, show about politics every Sunday, um, and it's a bunch of reporters that go around the country and interview people and what have you. And 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 last week they were talking about uh, the the governor's race in Virginia um, and what's going on there and how um, Youngkin, I think, is his name, the, yeah, the Republican yeah. who's running, has essentially weaponized. Uh, parents freaking out about right. their kids and about school like mm-hmm. he's like that's the way in i'm gonna get to them by scaring the bejesus out of them when it comes to their kids because i know that that's everyone loves their kids and blah 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 and just watching those machinations play out and unfortunately working if the polling data is to be accurate 
is speaks to exactly what you guys are talking about. This idea that I know what's best for my kids and you will not teach my kids things that I don't want you to teach them is crazy. This idea that Beloved, the book, the Toni Morrison book was handed out to a bunch of kids in, in Virginia and they turned that into a talking point as though it was some horrific thing they shouldn't be reading uh, is just insane. Anyway, I digress. It's by the way, uh, and and just to bring that point back all the way back to Dead Poets is, you know, the re- so the, what I'm hearing you essentially say is like all the reasons why Keating got fired are alive and well. hundred <laughs> percent. Right? Maybe it's more like alive and well. More, more alive yeah. and well. And it, it's, yeah. you know, it's it, Keating had to get fired, not just because of, all, you know, the, all the ideas that he was teaching and it goes against and how dare you. And those are our kids' minds. And we, we own our kids' minds, not you, not them. We yeah. own yeah. our kids' minds. Right. Um, but also because, uh, parents in the parents' inability to take any responsibility for any role they might play in any of the tragic events of their children's lives or the mistakes their kids make yeah. or, you know, so this is like, like Neil's father is, we talked about how well he played that role. It's so beautiful. Like there's no, like part, part of the tragedy of that and why I don't want to see a sequel is like <laughs> yeah. that story, that story never evolves. It doesn't go anywhere. The rest, the narrative for the rest of that character's life is my son killed himself because this radical teacher came in, encouraged him to do something that was dangerous, and and look what happened. There's no moment in this man's life where he goes, maybe it was me. Maybe I didn't let my son be who I'm sure those thoughts are in there at night. And he silences them with like, no, it was Keating's fault. Yep, yep. And so we are actually watching, I feel like we're watching the end of this movie play out like on the on, news, on nightly on news. news. Every day. Yeah. But, but I, I do want to say this. We are far beyond the world that they lived in in 1958. We are far beyond. I mean, my kids go to a progressive school. Your kids go to a progressive school. These places exist because of teachers like Keating uh, influencing people like Todd and Todd growing up to influence other people around him and create schools that, you know, kind of express those ideas. We're, we're so far beyond like, like everything else. What we're witnessing are the death, death throes of a, of a, of a, you know, a, a, obsolete or a hopefully soon to be obsolete mindset. And uh, it's always going to be like that. But there are not schools that operate like Weldon anymore. You know, just like hopefully there won't be schools that, you know, only teach the Christopher Columbus version of the founding of America anymore. Um, But yeah, I I understand. I understand that, you know, like, like that these people certainly still exist. Now, the thing that kills me today is, the view of poetry from the book that they ripped out is not factually inaccurate. And Keating's way isn't factually inaccurate. These are Wait, you're on Pritchard's side? <laughs> no, I'm not on anybody's side. I'm st- what I'm saying is <laughs> what, what I'm saying is yeah. it's not that I'm on anybody's side. It's I'm saying these are two schools of thought, both, right, right, right. both valid. Um right, right, right. right. Uh, Christopher Columbus found that America is an invalid thought, right? <laughs> like, like that's that's right. just you know, it's an untrue thought. That's not that's that's uh, that's not a fact. Yeah, um, right. Or we live in a society that has been you know that where where white people have been kind of 
boosted by 200 years or 400 years of white supremacy, starting from slavery through Jim Crow to, on to today. This isn't debatable. These aren't yeah. debatable things. So what we're arguing about now is not basically differences in style and strategy. Um, it's should we be teaching facts or we should, or we should well or should we continue to 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 live in ignorant bliss no i i couldn't i i i couldn't agree with you more and i also feel like and this is one of my my kind of big frustrations i guess with the right is more about um trying to grind the gears of progress that there's an inevitability to you not teaching kids about slavery is not going to change the fact that it existed and that they are going to learn about it and that it is going to affect them one way or another. This idea that parents think they can cloister their children wild, in some dude. sort of bizarre wild. little like bubble of, of misinformation or what have you is, is insane to me and, and, is, and is just counterintuitive. But, you know. It, it's, I could fucking talk about this all day because it's, <laughs> because it's, it's, it's truly the, the, yeah. the arguments I hear from people I know people I like about teaching critical race theory always come back to this idea of, I don't think my, at its core, I don't think my white kid can handle being told he's part of the problem. And I wouldn't say I have been teaching critical race theory to my kids. I would just (laughs) say that I have been talking in a way that, uh, I've been talking in a way that I think uh, underlines what I, think is the truth about this country. And I guarantee you, in no way do my kids feel bad about being white people. Yeah, they don't no, feel and they can bad. handle it. And they yeah. can handle it. I've been talking They're to my kid about race since it. he was three. Me too. I've been talking about race in this house since he was three. And they can totally handle it. Well, I would and say... You, and um, they're, they're, they're so comfortable with it. They're so comfortable with talking about it. They're so comfortable with... The, it's just... And, and, I mean, I told Phil this. <laughs> I'm like so proud of my kid. Because it's, <laughs> I like, I was we like my daughter because you know I have nine year old twins. My daughter in the back of the car, just you know, we were gonna go to Disneyland, and she goes, hey, "Daddy, was Walt Disney a bad guy?" And my son, under his breath, goes, "I mean, he was a racist piece of shit." Which, <laughs> well. it's like, it's it's just it's and again. This is one of those things. You can hold two things at the same time. You can be racist yeah. piece of shit. And you can all say, you know, it's Disneyland. Right. Don't and as they life. get older, that will evolve to an age appropriate level of conversation, <laughs> right? That, that conversation will, will get more and more elevated and more sure. and more nuanced. Sure. And, um, there because came- I love, the, because I know we have to wrap up and I love this movie yeah. so much. Yeah. I can't stop talking yeah, about yes, it. Yes, so yes, I'm going to bring, yes, please, no, I'm course, gonna bring it back to it for my conclusion. Oh, yeah, I think, absolutely. With this, um, point, which is I, I think if John Keating were here and Neil, and I think Neil, um, maybe Todd now that he's grown, maybe Todd. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, uh, would in listening to this make the argument that actually that's what the poetry is for. That's what art is for, right? Like we still need doctors and lawyers. Right. There's nothing there's nothing wrong with the students who want to follow, who want to conform and want to participate in society and not want to rock the boat and not want to be revolutionaries. Right. And like we need people, not that you can't be a doctor or revolutionary at the same time, but there are people. Jay was a doctor and a revolutionary. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Great is the perfect response. (laughs) 
A lot of people don't know that. Great is my way of being. Don't take me off. Don't make a good point we have to talk about. I'm on a rant. It's not a good point. Uh, Come on, go ahead. Go ahead. Valid point. Back to me. Um, (laughs) Is that, you know, it's, there are so many difficult things in a life, as I'm fond of saying, it's hard to be a person in the world. And when we are confronted with whether it's CRT, whether it's, you know, um, you know, the lives of, um, you know, transgendered, um, people growing up in places where they can't be themselves, right? Whether it's people screaming at each other over mask mandates or, or gubernatorial races in Virginia, like whatever is going on, it's all attached to really, really big feelings about things that make us deeply uncomfortable, that make us feel uncertain, that make us afraid, that make us question. It's really hard to find out you're wrong and you've been wrong about something your whole life. It's hard to change your mind. These things are not easy to do. It's why we don't do them well, right? And it's like, (laughs) well, where do you go with those feelings? Where do you go to process them? Where do you go to be a full human being where you can like have that to like let it go so you can have the conversation? Well, you go to the fucking poetry. You go to the movies. You look at a painting, you, that's where it goes. That's how we work out the muck so that then we can have civilized conversations. Yeah. It's, it's about being inspired. It's about escape. It's about, you know, nurturing your, you know, yourself through other people's perspectives in the world. I mean, I, right. So you don't have to grow up to be someone who wants to be a radical or wants to be a poet or even an actor or whatever, but like, I think the thing this movie also just beautifully encourages is I'm not telling you to do this instead, but add this piece, add this to your life. Your life will be so much better. Just add this, you know? I I couldn't agree more. There are two quick scenes that I, that I want to talk about and uh, then we'll rate this and and go live our lives. But uh, the the first is go carpe diem. uh, Go go carpe diem (laughs) uh, is the scene with Todd. Uh, speaking in front of the class, which is he's obviously the yawp. We talk about the yawp, but he also the um, Robin Williams covering his eyes, the camera spinning around him as he's making up mm-hmm. this poetry on the yeah. spot. Um, it, honestly, like it just it makes me cry. There's just something so beautiful about. Um, I mean, if if teaching is not about inspiring a person to come out of their shell and to to blossom into this wonderful thing that I don't know what it, what it's supposed to be doing. I mean, there, there is something so seeing that in text and in scene is just so beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I think that it's uh, the, the moment at the end of the scene where he takes his head and says, don't forget this. Like that idea of that scene changes that person's life forever. Right. Like it's just, you know, that Todd is a different person from the beginning to the end of that scene. It's just it's 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 just and I love that line. Don't forget this, because the thing he is acknowledging is that the likelihood that Robin Williams, even if he stayed, even if John Keating stayed for the whole semester, even if he taught them for the remaining years at this school, the likelihood he's an anomaly, right? The likelihood that they are going to go back, that the record player is going to fall back into the groove, that they're actually just going to grow up and get married and have kids and live the lives that their parents basically want for them. You know, that is the future for, for these boys, right? And he knows that. Robin Williams. He's not trying to change them. He's trying to he's trying to shift just this one thing that they can take with them. And I feel like that's what he's saying when he says don't forget this. It's I know that you're going to grow up and actually you are going to follow this path that's been set for you. But it's okay. Mm-hmm. Just take this with you. 
there's also, I mean, it's not a coincidence that Todd is the last shot of the movie, right? That, mm-hmm. that, that we were holding on Todd, the possibility of Todd, the, the introverted kid who didn't know the power of his words or what he was capable of. Um, and that he's the one who stands on his desk first. He's the one who says, Oh, captain, my captain. And, and, and begs for forgiveness you know, and says, we didn't, you know, they forced us to sign this. We didn't do it on our own. And that Keating obviously knows that. Um, it, it's one of those scenes that I mean, is, is perfect. And I love the end of the, the final moment of this movie. But like just that it's, it's so close to tipping. Like it could have become so overly dramatic and overly sincere um, and, and, and just, you know, and it just walks that line so beautifully. The idea that it's not all the kids, that like about a dozen kids are still sitting down with their heads down, you know, filled with shame. Um, it, it, it's, uh, it's just a really, and the music swelling and just the, the power of a physical representation of showing solidarity for this man and what he hopefully will do to inspire them in their, in the, their future lives is, is just, it's, it's incredible. They're nodding again for our listeners. Let's rate it. Uh, <laughs> let's uh, Kenny, let's rate we it. should nod audibly. <laughs> let's uh, so, let, yeah. let's, uh, let's give let's a number ranking to this piece of art. <laughs> to this piece of art. Do the thing that, uh, that Keating would hate us for doing. Um, in 1989, uh, I saw this film. I don't think I saw it in the theater, but I could be wrong. I've, I vividly remember watching it with my parents. Uh, loved it, watched it many, many, many times. I probably would have said a 94, 95, something like that back then. Watching it before this podcast, again, it worked incredibly well for me. It was still probably in the low 90s, like 92, something like that. I'm still around there. Like, I'm at a 90, I guess. I mean, like, it's not... Is it a perfect movie? I mean, no, no movie's perfect, but, you know. Phil, you right. had this on your top five at the beginning of uh, this. I did, I did. Sorry about my dog. Um, you had this in the top five. Do you think it'll be there at the end? I don't know if it'll be in my top five at the end. I don't know. I think Fabulous Baker Boys might just get that five slot because I just fucking adore that film. Um, And I think that this one... There's still a few we haven't done from your five, too. So So I'm I'm excited. I mean, we'll we'll talk about them. But uh, what about you, Kenny? Where are you you at with this? Well, I think I was, you know, uh, kind of an 85 before. Um, I actually think I remember when I watched this the first time. It was in my apartment, in my room, the first year I moved out when I was kind of trying to fill in some gaps. Uh, and I and I loved it, and I, I I think it's just you know it's a it's a really tremendous film. Uh, I was down a little bit before this mm-hmm. podcast. I was down to a seventy nine, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't feel that anymore. I I, I feel like I, I feel at least an eighty five. I'm actually going to go to like an eighty six uh, now. Like I I feel talking about it. Anything that I was kind of uncomfortable with has kind of dissipated. And most of what I'm left with is that uplifting feeling that you feel at the end. Because Rachel's the, the best. Rochelle's the, the best. That's Rachel. The, the, the well, Rachel, Rochelle, Rochelle, Rochelle. Yeah, Rochelle. Uh, the, I've had friends that, for 20 years still do that every now and then. It's just a weird thing. The, <laughs> it just uh, the wealth of possibilities in, in, in front of me. Um, and I'm going to go carpe diem after Rachel Rochelle gives her uh, <laughs> answer. Rochelle, where, 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 where were you in 89? Okay, you're allowed to call me Rachel, but Rachel Rochelle is not allowed to stick. <laughs> <laughs> you're allowed to make the mistake, but you can't make it a thing. Okay. 
Um, yeah, this movie for me when I uh, when I first saw it was like a like a hundred. Like I just, but I'm. I will say I will add this as like the asterisk to my to my rating mm-hmm. and why I won't rate this movie anything but a hundred, which is that. I'm the target audience for this movie down to the, like, you want to talk about like charts and graphs and rating systems. <laughs> if they could have made the target audience for this movie in a lab, they would have made me. <laughs> yeah. So, um, like I was the nerdy kid, you know, reading poetry in my room, afraid to go to school because I might accidentally, refer- you know, reference something and then be accused of being like an uber nerd and, you know, and wanting to know like, why the other nine-year-olds like didn't see the, you know, didn't see the beauty and they didn't want to stop and watch the wind catch the trees and then write about it. You know, like I, so this movie's for me. Um, <laughs> I felt seen. Uh, and then when I watched it because of the, when I watched it now, I had all those same feelings. And then I had the added thing of being able to see it from the parents' point of view, like we were talking about, um, Kenny and being able to see, like really see the adult characters. Um, so for me now, I'm like, was scale ain't no scale can contain this movie ain't no ratings ain't no rating system gonna hold this movie down like it's it's just in my forever top five i just love it yeah it's 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 i mean in a way that's unapologetically romantic because the romance just washes away any of the critique that i you know or might engage in it's like major league for me Exactly. We would, exactly. <laughs> uh, we would expect nothing but for, nothing less than for you to be romantic about this film, obviously. Um, and and I love that we that we follow Titus, the 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 most brutal and awful and and least romantic movie that's ever been made. Right. Uh, with Dead Poets Society. Um, thank you so so much, Rochelle, uh, for coming uh, on and talking the about best. this movie thank with us. Thank you. And continue we, we to do decades. Continue to invite me back. Oh. You still oh, owe me, We're- by the way. There was a challenge. There was a gauntlet thrown down about whether we could watch something terrible and I could convince you to up your. That's actually it. a really good point. Well, Kenny, we still have a bunch you. of. That's a, that's a 99 challenge. That's a 99 right challenge. <laughs> for sure. And there are definitely some oh my doozies God. left. If you can convince us, that's a challenge that transcends time. I want to. I I also would like to take that challenge. um, Not necessarily with you, Rochelle, but in just in general, I want. I want to put on my Armand White hat pretty badly. (laughs) You've done this before. You've definitely put your Armand White hat. No, not with the not with the movie because I think what Armand White does is he. uh, I think he. He's like a brilliant man, and I think he knows what a good movie is and what a bad movie is. And I think he then just, you know, he he just writes his review and then photo negatives it, and then he's like, <laughs> he's just like, okay, everything up is now down, everything yeah. is now out, yeah. and yeah. he just tries to see if he can, you know, through the through the power of the written word, can convince you mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. Jack and Jill is one of the you know great American greatest comedies. films ever made. Which, you know, uh, you read his review, we, he's pretty convincing. It's so. going to be, we're going to find a movie, Rochelle, and it's going to be something else. We're going to, we're going to find one that, that you have to defend. Uh, and, and you might listen, you, you're four for four, really. I mean, you came on yeah. for two movies that we were unsure about Definitely. and convinced us of brilliance. Yeah. Uh, Titus, I think we were all I mean, the fact that I movie. made, the fact that I made Kenny appreciate anywhere but here even yeah, like it is yeah, going on it's on that's on my resume under special skills well you <laughs> like, you went i just for what it's worth you made, if our you listeners made me have appreciate not, myself 
You made you made me no, the the thing about that episode because it is probably my favorite episode of the show is I started to realize that that's what we do. Be that's like yes, what this yes, podcast is yes, about. Yes. You know, this podcast is about it's it, the 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 we we thought it was about. And I still kind of think it's about. You know, can we run this marathon? Can we finish uh-huh. this marathon? And eh, we're going to finish the marathon. We're going to finish that hard. You know, you you can always walk in a marathon or crawl in a marathon. We're going to get there. But what this parent, what this what this podcast really is about is like the ways in which a conversation with a uh, with with fellow, you know, interested mm-hmm. audience members actually can change your you know your feelings on a movie, sure. not even your opinions, your feelings on a movie. And wasn't really until that movie that my my viewpoint on a film was dramatically changed. The way you want to believe you're capable of changing someone else's mind when you talk about a film, uh, you know, you I, don't just talk. You know, I don't talk about movies to be like just listen to me. I hope at the end they're like, you know, good point. I, I will look at that in a different way. I so do think you that did it episode, to me, which was exciting. I, I fully I agree with everything Kenny's saying. I'll also say that that episode went one step farther where Kenny said we had to stop recording so we stop. could talk about stop. talking about some went, personal stuff. That, that movie going on. went like, too. That movie actually, that, was, Kenny. that went too far, <laughs> and I think was the beginning of a personal journey that uh, that three years later I can say is still ongoing. It was, but it that was, was but everything that you was just amazing. said. Yeah, but everything you just said, Kenny, including the part where we had to shut down for a minute so we could like talk about these intensely personal things, is like you know at the risk of being bumper sticker-esque like you've just summed up the entire argument for art yeah there you go well thank you but (laughs) uh, but, thank you i but that's the thing that That i was like my great that was your great that's the thing that that, that's that that part of me that hates awards that's the thing i think we've lost like there's this It's just become a fight. It's become what's good and what's bad and what's dumb and what's smart and what's lazy. It's just, it's, that's why I become binary is the problem. You, this idea that like, like, intractable. It's just, yes. And intractable. Like, you know, and, and the thing that like I like about the challenge is I do want you to come on for something that is, of ill repute, I'll say, right? <laughs> like, I, I think that's more important because, like, we've done so many movies, so that are like straight up bad that, like, I, I yeah. wouldn't even be fun to have her come on to convince us why my favorite Martian is worthwhile. But something that's like of Morgan Ill did repute. do that though quite quite effectively, I thought, when she came on for it. But I know what you're saying. Yeah, but even but that wasn't even her 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 that wasn't even her her. I know. Play. I know. I know. Her play was yeah. like this. Is, was important to me in a period of time, and like, but whatever. Mm-hmm. It's the idea is, yes. Can we can we find something worthwhile in these films? And whatever. I think we can. We'll see. We're gonna we'll give figure it out. I, I think I think we can, and I think that also the the fun of it, the playfulness yes. of it, is yes. giving the is giving the uh, creators of is giving the film more credit than they deserve, totally. right? Like, totally. I love the idea of watching something that's really bad and then giving the creator all of these, like, intentions and, yeah. like, and, yeah. and, like, making it so right. meaningful in a way that it just wasn't for them. <laughs> Kenny is so in. It's amazing. Jim, uh, we'll, see you on, we'll see you on for Jim Belushi's sequel to his hit film, K-9. K-9-1-1. K-9-1-1. 
K911. It'll be great. We can't wait. See you on it for K911. <laughs> watch uh, this space. Watch this space. Rochelle, thank you so, so much. You're the best. It was, it was actually direct to video. I didn't realize that. <laughs> Uh, we'll, we'll find something. It's going to be great. Um, but this was a blast as always. Always a pleasure. And we thank you so, so much for coming on. I love you both. Carpe diem. We love Carpe you. Diem. <laughs> All right. And still champion. Hey, guys. It's Phil here again. Uh, so now we have our interview with Tom Shulman, the Academy Award winning screenwriter of Dead Poets Society. It's a great interview. He's super fun. We talk about him winning his Oscar and what it was like making the film, writing the film and all of that. And it's, uh, it's a great interview. He's a great guy. So uh, stick around for that. As promised, here we are with Tom Shulman, the, uh, the screenwriter for Dead Poets Society. Tom, thank you so much for coming on our show. You're welcome. <laughs> so um, I... I I got to ask the question right at the gate because Kenny and I today uh, watched your Oscar clip when you won the Academy Award for this for this film. Um, should, I, should, I just, our, should I just click off right now? Is that the yeah? You're, yeah, I mean you, you won, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I did. Could I drop did. the mic and yeah. walk just away drop the mic want. and take <laughs> off. Um, uh, but with you are our first. Am I right, Kenny? First Academy Award winner that we've had the, the pleasure of talking That's with. True. And Kenny and I are both big Oscar guys. We, we, we love talking Oscars. And I guess my first question to you is, what's the first thing that goes through your head after they call your name? Well, in my case, I didn't even really want to, you know, I'm, I'm like the shy kid in Dead Poets Society, like Todd. Sure. I, I didn't want to go. I just thought, <laughs> you know, hey, if I win, why do I have to get up there? First of all, I didn't think I'd win. Second of all, I thought, I don't, well, don't want to have to get up. you were a bunch of losers. So <laughs> you you should have exactly. known. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I just thought, you know, if I win, I don't want to have to get up in front of Right. 40, 40 billion people or whatever they <laughs> hype that that broadcast yeah. to be so you know but everybody said you're going and so uh and my parents came out here and you know it was just what's well, great incredible amount of pressure um so uh yeah so my while they were reading you know you it, the, the evening seems interminable while you're there and sure. uh while they were uh reading the category honestly i just thought uh, don't call me, please don't let it be me. I, I had such a fear of public speaking. And then when when they called my name, that just kind of all fe- you did felt like it went away. You did a great no, job. No, I was terrible, terrible. That is, that's so you know, not true. Oh there my God, it's I mean, so embarrassing. I, I can't even you tell you. You didn't pull out a piece of paper. Yeah. I did not do that. You, but, got, every, you got every name down that, that any any mm-hmm. reasonable yeah. And an appreciative person would have gotten. Yeah, I think I think I muttered some bitterness about the difficulty of getting into the business or something. I, I don't know, but <laughs> that made me, that gonna, made me you know, feel yeah, great. Yeah. yeah, I was like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, it, it was uh, the weird thing is that as I was walking up to the stage, I heard someone from the orchestra pit go, "Hey, Tom!" And I looked down; it was my one of my closest friends' ex-wives, who's a singer. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm standing there; I haven't seen her in like five years. So I'm standing there talking to her. And she goes, "You know, you might want to go up on stage." I'm oh, like, that's oh, so right. funny! So that's I went amazing. up there, and, and then, uh, and of course, you know, Jane Fonda was my produ- uh, presenter. Yeah, and mm-hmm. uh, afterwards they take you downstairs to this room where they have these giant big plastic Oscars 
on either side of you and you're on a stage and in front of you or the press and in, in, uh, in, 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 uh, on bleachers, you know, facing you. And we walked up and Jane introduced me and she said, any questions? And people oh, started so going, cool. Jane, what's it like to be back to the business? What's life like with Ted, Ted, uh, you know, uh, Ted Turner, blah, yeah. blah, blah. And she said, wait a minute, stop. This is not my night. This is Tom's night. Please direct your questions at Tom. And there was a long pause and someone said, Tom, what's it like to be, get an Oscar from Jane? Yeah. <laughs> at, which, at which point she said, that's enough. And she dragged me off stage and, you know, I snuck back into my seat with the, with the statue. That's amazing. That He's it. always been cool. Yeah. She gave a really cool preamble too, I thought, before she read the nominees, where she was talking about how, you know, it's all about the written word. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I mean, listen, I know a lot of people wax poetic in these presentation, you know, in these presenter slots, but I, I mean, she's always been awesome. She always yeah, knows genuine. Absolutely. And, and absolutely. So. She's great. So, yeah. But I, I mean, but I, do, I, I forgot yeah. to, as I, as we were waiting for the elevator to go downstairs, I was kicking myself for the for a couple of people that I forgot to thank. And she looked at me and she goes, you just won an Oscar. What's wrong? <laughs> I said, I forgot to thank a couple of people. And she goes, well, thank them next time. <laughs> I thought only, yeah. only, you know, an actor yeah. could, could be that. She's like, there's, <laughs> there's always coming home. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, well, that, I, so I want to rewind. By to, the way, to, by the way. Yes, please, please, please. Sorry, Crane. Yeah. What about Bob should have been your coming home? But oh, I just say it. Thank you. I actually don't remember Cluder coming up a second, but you know, whatever. Well, I, was, I was just going to say, as a as a hypochondriac, what what about Bob really speaks to me? So I, I mean, I, I think that that's a, too. Oh. perhaps the the most quintessential hypochondria film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, as, as 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 someone who you know dreams about replacing my dad with someone cooler, it speaks to me. Too. <laughs> but <it's>, <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do want to rewind. The Dreyfus for, for Bill Murray swap is kind of a dream, I would imagine, for those kids. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so to, I, I want to kind of rewind for a second because I, I, there are some things that I want to kind of. I obviously want to ask you about the development of the film, but really just to kind of take it back to its inception, mm-hmm. what made you want to write this film? I know that it's somewhat based on a, on your experiences with a teacher that you had, but yep. what made you want to write it? I was in a workshop called the Actors and Directors Lab, and uh, the the head of the workshop and teacher there was Jack Garfine, who had been a Hollywood director, Broadway director, mm-hmm. and uh, his mentor was Harold Clerman who was uh, sort of a grand old fixture on Broadway and directed on, uh, form, I think, founder of the group uh, theater, you know, actor's studio, um, directed dozens of plays on Broadway. And by that time, in his mid-80s and was uh, the lead critic for the magazine The Nation. And he would come out to the workshop about every two or three months, review the work of Jack's students for about 10 seconds. <laughs> And then, uh, then stand on stage and hold forth about anything and everything as if he had been everywhere on the planet at all times in history for three or four hours. Absolutely riveting. And I think there's some clips of him because he directed a play at the, uh, Mark Taper and he sort of held forth for a while there too. He's just sort of this volcanic presence on stage. And I, a- after those, 
evenings, I think all of us in the workshop thought, you know, we really, we, we, we've got to be like that. We've got to change the world, blah, 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 blah. And then of course we wake up the next day and go, uh, not, not going to happen. <laughs> but, uh, I wanted to write something about, about him and, and first thought of writing about this work, actor's workshop and so forth. And that just sort of didn't go anywhere. All the characters were wanted to be actors. And so, um, uh, I thought, well, I'm, I'm kind of inspired by this teacher. I have a, had a teacher my sophomore year in high school who was antic and brilliant and, and, you know, lovable and, and, uh, uh, inspiring like Clerman. So I just thought, well, that's the setting to do this in, you know, and use him, use sort of the, a blend of the two, use whatever I want, but let, let that be the setting for this. And then, you know, let the, let the students be high school students, you know, affected by this teacher. So the, 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 the private school element, did you go to a private school? Was this yeah. a somewhat it was an all boys day school in Nashville, Tennessee called Montgomery okay. Bell Academy. Um, so there's, I don't know if this is true or not, because, you know, the internet is the internet. So take it for what it's worth. But is it true that there was, that Disney wanted it to be about dancing? I had a meeting with some executives at Disney before who passed on it uh, eventually, but they liked the script and their, you know, their thoughts were the usual, you know, there can, could there be three worse words in a title, dead poet society altogether, <laughs> you know, that, that sort of stuff. And, uh, I think at a certain point we were sitting in the meeting and it's like, why poetry? And I'm going, he's really an English teacher, but he just, it just focuses on poetry. How about dance? You know, I think fame had just come out. Dead dancer (laughs) society. Well, yeah. And they went and they, I think someone, you know, make him a dancing teacher. He can inspire them that way, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, and I think they even had a, someone said, I, we even have a title, Sultans of Strut. Oh yeah. (laughs) You know, and in those, yeah, so I just said, well, uh-oh, I don't think about it, and you know, right. it, it never it gave it another that, thought. That yeah. thirty-three, it's thirty-three, thirty-two years later, uh, that meeting you had with Disney executives made its way on the internet. Turns out to be true. It's the kind of thing that's a nice little non-apocryphal story about the making of this, <laughs> yeah. of this movie. Yeah. That's it's just so funny what uh, what kind of persists. Yeah, um, yeah. it's um, true. It's true. It's also amazing to me, and I mean, we've all been in these in these pitches, but like, it, it never ceases to amaze me the executive pitch that they have. It always comes with the sort of like, I mean, the bad pitch is dot dot dot, right? right when really right. that's the pitch that they want to <laughs> exactly. go with. Yeah, yeah. And I love it when I they pitched- go, "Okay, bad idea," and then they. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> I, I had this pitch years ago that uh, that was about a, a girl who um, becomes a, a sort of an assistant to a rock band. And I pitched it and they were like, we really love it. But could the band be vampires? <laughs> that, that is not the same thing. It's, I mean, it's, it's a completely, yeah. but yeah, it's just amazing that the, how can we change something that's really in the DNA of this thing that you've, that you've made? But yeah, of course. Well, I, I, I want to go back even a little further. Mm-hmm. So, Tom, you wrote this on spec. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, no one is going to pay you to write Dead Poet Society. Right. 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 Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I just, yeah. you know, so I just wanted to be, you know, respectful, <laughs> yeah. but of course I assume yeah. that, you know. <laughs> Uh, so you wrote you wrote this on spec. You what was your next step? What how did how does a how does a movie with with a title that makes people you know a little a little dour uh, make its way from your word processor to uh, Touchstone Pictures to hundreds of million dollars to Robin Williams to all of these things that 
so rarely happens now and even rare it was even rare then particularly a a, a frankly a literary drama you are up generally yeah. against movies that are movies that come with some ip attached when you're yep. pitching yep. a film like this so yeah ip wasn't as important back then there was more openness mm-hmm. to original stuff so um i think i mean it felt like it it feels like that that was the case but um i had an agent um, I was at the Paul Conner agency. My agent was a guy named Gary Salt, wonderful guy, now deceased. And uh, I sent it to Gary, and I think he called me at like two o'clock in the morning and said, I just closed this. It's amazing. And I just wow. wanted to call you, and you know, I'll call you again in the morning. So I went, Wow, okay. So the next morning we spoke, and he said, You know, I've been thinking about it. I just, I think it's one of the best things I've ever read, but I can't sell it. You know, it's a boys boarding school. There's no sex. It's poetry, but, you know, the usual. And I said, wow. And he said, so I, I hate to say it, but if you want to get this made, um, you're going to have to um, get another agent. So I sent it out to five, six agents and you oh, know, wow. all passed but one and uh, who <laughs> told me, I, you know, I've read half this. I think, you know, I can use, get some actors from my agency here in it and, you know, try to package it and set it up. And basically, you know, a few meetings, nothing happened. Uh, a producer named Stephen Haft read it. And I guess a year and a half later, my agent said, you know, I'm not doing anything on this. Stephen Haft said he can't get it out of his head. Um, and he's close to Jeff Katzenberg at Disney. I haven't told him that Disney passed. So uh, let's let him option it. I think. $500 or something and uh, see what he can do. So he gave it to Katzenberg and Katzenberg read it and bought it the same day. He had never wow. seen it, knew nothing about it. So at that point uh, we had another director on the movie. We met, we decided, you know, Robin Williams would be the perfect guy. And, uh, but Robin wouldn't make it with that director. So uh, they, <laughs> Well, you know, eventually they parted ways with the director and Peter Weir came on board. And So Robin was, was there before Peter? Yeah. Interesting. There, then not there, then there. Right, again. right, right. Yeah, yeah, sure, Dustin, sure. Dustin Hoffman came in after Rob, after the first director. He was going to uh-huh. direct and star in it. Uh, that fell apart after about six months. And yeah. then, Gosh. you know, over, over the start date of all things. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, it's it's interesting as you're telling the story. I mean, Kenny and I both work in television primarily. So the feature world is still, if I'm being completely frank, I went to film school, but like the feature world, the business of movie making to me is just uh, still kind of Narnia to me. Like it still doesn't feel like a real thing. Mm-hmm. And and you just talking about how Dustin Hoffman's attached to this thing for six, eight months, something like, like and you're just, you're just sitting there writing other things, I assume, or thinking about writing other things, but still like... The, the how long it takes these things and they still might never get made. That's right. It's unbelievable. It's I, I remember because Dustin, we spent almost every day together just talking it through and, you know, talking about casting and everything else. And one day, uh, Larry Gordon, mm-hmm. who produces such a character, came and I, I usually sat in on the meetings with that Dustin had with other people. So I was sitting there and we talked for they talked for a few minutes and Dustin excused himself to go to the bathroom. Uh-huh. And Larry Gordon said, who are you? What are you doing here? So I told him and he said, <laughs> you think he's directing your movie? You think he's going to be in my movie? Because Larry had something set up with him, too. I, let me tell you something. He's not doing either one of these things. <laughs> and I said, 
I said, how do you know that? He said, it's just the odds. You know, it's just the odds. This guy has 50 things in development. He's not doing either one of them. And he turned out to be right. <laughs> but <laughs> that's the same. Yeah. 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 And that's that's that never is, changed. Yeah. Um, so I read something else online about um, Keating having a disease in one draft where, he, where right. it was. So how, how did how did that sort of play? Was that in an earlier draft? Was that later down the road? How did that work? No, it was in the original draft, and um, you know, people responded. It was it, it was it became made the movie even more of a tearjerker. Yeah. Uh, I, what happens is, I think around page eighty, the kids go to class, and Keating's not there, and they find out they have a substitute teacher, and they find out that he's in the hospital. So they go to visit him, and turns out he has, I think, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, mm-hmm. which at the time you could live twenty, thirty years. It wasn't a you know, an instant death sentence, but it was that. So it, and I had not actually planned that scene before I sat down to write it. I kind of had a out, big outline. So I, that was not there, but somewhere around that time, I think I got insecure about why the yeah. carpe diem of it all. So that, that explained it. And then yeah, it's, it's that little yeah. thing where you go, I need a thing. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's exactly. like right here, I, I just need a thing. There's a thing. That's, that's right. And then it's like, yeah. death, that'll get him. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, Peter Weir, when Peter Weir signed on, he, he told me, you know, we had a meeting. I, the Katzenberg told me, you know, Peter's got a problem with the ending. And I'm like, oh, my God, because I thought the ending, which is yeah. the ending on the movie, was was pretty pretty strong. So it turns out, no, Peter had a problem with that that scene, the, the, the fact that Keating was dying. And, uh, and he was amazed. Peter said, look, I'm, I, I, we should spend as much time as possible talking about this. I don't want you to do this because I tell you to do it. Sure. In fact, if, if you did it because I told you to do it, I won't direct the movie. <laughs> he said, I'm not going to make <laughs> you take it out, but you need, so we started and I wanted to keep it. I thought everybody had responded strongly to it. Finally, uh, Peter said, look, I think I've figured out what's bothering me. He said, aside from the fact that it turns the movie into a kind of movie of the week weepy, it, it also, it's easy for a bunch of kids to stand on their desk for someone who's dying, irrespective of what they, that person has, mm-hmm. has taught them or what they stand for. He said, so, but if, if they're not dying, that means only point. one thing. They're standing because of what he's taught them. Character. Yeah. And I thought, damn it, that that's right. <laughs> so that's a, good, that's a very effective. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I I can't disagree with that. <laughs> yeah, and when we met with well, Robin, yeah, he's a good director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He knows what he's doing. But, you yeah. tend to want to listen, but you know, you, you sort of. <laughs> Um, but that was, yeah. that was back in the days when I, I literally fought for anything and everything yeah. that, that I put down on the page. <laughs> and I was not, but you know, that's, that's the learning process. What was it, what was it like working with Peter? I mean, he's obviously has a illustrious career, a, a fascinating career of so many yeah. different types of movies. And this was sort of really kind of smack in the center of his, yep. of his, uh, of his career, which is still going. But, yep. um, what was it like working with him? He he was amazing. He he you know said to me in the first meeting, why why aren't you directing this, <laughs> Peter? I, I am so lucky to get this made. I don't want to have any. He said, but you, I can tell from the way you wrote it because you know th- that you want to direct. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I want you on the set. So and you know I've directed eight movies. So if you have any questions, if I can be of help with oh, you, wow, that's you know, cool. he was so amazing that way. So um, yeah. I love that. I love that question. Why aren't you directing it? And my answer is, my answer is always, oh, it's happened to me too. Not that I've, you know, made stuff, but it's, you want to direct this, right? I'm like, 
No. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I, I want it made. I, like, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. not going to go. I'm not going to like. I'm not going to like suicide bomb this movie by saying I need to direct it and have nobody want in. It's crazy, but yeah, so. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's it. Uh, you know, as I, as I mentioned, I went to film school thinking that I wanted to direct, and I left film school knowing that I wanted to write. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the, the 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 various things you have to be sort of adept at. The just the the breadth of so much of the different pieces of is just not i just want to tell a good story and i want to write good characters and and i feel incredibly grateful that i get to do that so yeah get it made yeah um so there's also uh there were some rumors online that there was a sequel planned was that true you know um steven halfman i've been talking about it but i mean that back then there was an effort to make a sequel and and i wanted no part of it like to me it's ultra you know one-off thing but uh same with the tv series and even paul witt and tony thomas who were producers on the movie and you know had a tremendous television careers um didn't want it done as a uh a tv series so after i think some people wrote some scripts but they Mm -hmm. disney didn't find any of them uh suitable but in the last six months i've actually had an idea for i wouldn't call it a sequel but and the next step After. with this. So very cool. Been working on that a little bit. I hope I hope that I hope we get to see that someday. Yeah, me too. Uh, can, can, good, I, so. can I ask any questions about it? You can say I, no. Yeah. No, you can ask, but I won't answer. <laughs> yes, I'm gonna say, you won't, <laughs> I, the only thing I'm interested in, I'm, I mean, <laughs> um, among a million things, but the, 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 the first question that comes to mind is, uh, is it present day? No. Okay. No. Interesting. Mm-mm. Interesting. Okay. I mean, clearly you'd want to use some of the kids now that they've grown up. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, their, their current age, which is when you'd, what you'd have to use them as, would put the movie back in the, you know, late 80s, early 90s. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's cool because there are yeah. a bunch who would, who could start a TV show. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> It, that's the other thing too, you know. Kenny and I on our other podcast, uh, and I guess also on this one, but on the ninety nine podcast, you know, there were a lot of teen movies, and a lot of those casts obviously have deep benches, and a lot of those actors have gone on to have amazing careers. This is another perfect example of like when you look at a lot of the young mm-hmm. cast of this movie, it's 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 pretty unbelievable. W- were you were you part of the casting process? I'm assuming that you were. But yeah, I was. Yeah. What was yeah. what was that like when it comes to seeing all these young, new, fresh faces? It was interesting because it was being cast out of New York by Howard Fuhrer, and he um, would send tapes. Peter was out here in L.A., so was I. So he, he, Howard sent tapes. Peter and I would get them, and uh, we'd each watch the tapes at night, and we'd sit down the next day and go, well, what do you think? And we always picked the same people. I mean, we, we, there was never, ever That's a doubt great. about who, who should be what. So, uh, awesome. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I have a question, and it might be a tough one, but I'm going to ask it nonetheless. As a, as a fellow writer, this would be a tough But if you could go back and change something about the script, is there one thing? Is there something that sort of, that, I mean, listen, I'm sure there isn't, but I'm just, it's a great script, but I'm just curious with the, you know, many years of, of you know, foresight now, is there something that you would, uh, you know, that you'd be curious in, or, at changing? 
we did it as a play in New York and uh, off Broadway, and and I did change it, uh, and that was the suicide and the motivation for suicide. And in the script and and in the play, in the original script and in the play, Neil's father is a is a tougher guy, and it, you know there was a lot of worry about even the him being too much of a cliche in the movie, mm-hmm. but. I had all in the original script. He actually pulls Neil out of the play before he gets to oh. finish, and uh, and then and so you get that feeling that Neil is really almost a captive here. You know, he takes the kid home, and yes, he could run away, but you get the feeling he'd never get away from that father. Because I always felt like if Neil had had the option to run away, which clearly he did. Mm-hmm you know, he should have, and that, that would make the, the, so I've kept trying to find ways to make the suicide more sort of inevitable and, and him having no other option. And so that would be certainly one change. Yeah. 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 We, we talked about that um, on the episode with Rochelle. We had Rochelle Lefebvre, a a great actor in in her own right, um, to talk about the movie, which preceded this interview. Um, But, uh, we kind of discussed this notion of the of the suicide that's obviously a, a significant part of the of the film, but she really beautifully said uh, that for her, you know, the scene between the three of them after the play in the father's office, when essentially Neil comes face to face with what he feels is his, you know, his destiny and what this tragic end that he feels he needs to. Um, and she really kind of beautifully unpacked it in the sense of of this idea that this was a prison sentence that he was finally given the gift of, of knowing how he was supposed to spend the rest of his life, what he was put on this earth to do. And if he couldn't do that, life wasn't worth living. Now, again, she's an actor. So right, 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 right. That might speak to, to, you know, obviously what, what, what fuels her. But, but I think that there's a bunch of, a bunch of things that play into the suicide that makes it, at least it, it, it works. I mean, it certainly works for me and makes it incredibly powerful in the film. Yeah. I mean, it worked for me. I thought it worked, but I just, I always, I mean, at one point, Peter Weir said to me that he had once had a meeting with Ingmar Bergman and Bergman said to him, Peter, there's only, and this was before Peter got involved in the movie, there's only one thing you must never do. The audience will hate you for it. And that would be to kill off one of your main characters. And and I said, oh my God, well, what are we going to do? And he goes, we hope Bergman's wrong. <laughs> also, it's not like Bergman made light movies or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't making comedies. It's not yeah. like I mean, yeah. Yeah. That, I know. That I seems know. like that seems a little bit like a Bugs Bunny "Don't press this button" situation. <laughs> yeah. It does. Yeah, it does yeah. Feel yeah. Like, yeah. I know. You I, know. Yeah. I know. Basically, Bergman saying, "I only, I'm going to be the only one that kills off characters. That's right. The rest yeah. of you <laughs> don't, don't do it before I do." Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah. Yeah. It. It just. It was. Uh. You know. It's just. It was. It rang true to me when I wrote it. I mean, it's. I remember yeah. being that age and even being told, you know, you can't go out on a date in two weeks and that felt like a lifetime you know away sure, i couldn't would sure. not be able to handle waiting that long so you know for for neil knowing that he's got a few years before he can can defy his father and go out on his own is is un, unmanageable at the time so for yeah. sure yeah and that i would was, also that say- was part of the point with shell made it's it, neil's line where he 
says uh, in regards to med school, that's 10 years. 10 years. Yeah. I, that felt like he was being read his sentence, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and it did feel, you know, she turned me around on it. I was, uh, I was a little more uncomfortable with the motivation for the suicide initially, but, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think I engaged with it quite the way she did. And she really kind of, you should listen to the episode. She's, <laughs> yeah, she, she's, she's yeah. very convincing. She's the okay. best. Yeah, <laughs> good. good. Well, I'll listen and then I'll oh, use yeah. her arguments next time. The question. <laughs> yeah, perfect. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 it should also be said too that you know Kurtwood Smith, who plays the father, the actor who plays the father in the film, uh, is so good. I mm-hmm. mean, he's he really he makes that. I mean, not to say that your words don't do that, but I mean, it feels like a three dimensional character that that feels so lived in, and I think that you know perhaps in a lesser actor, it might have felt more almost mustache twirly. I mean, it would have felt yeah. more villainous yeah. where he really kind of, um, he makes it really beautiful and, and, and surprisingly effective. Yeah. I mean, I just think about the, you know, the moment at the, after Neil finishes the performance and he sees his father across the, across the orchestra of the, mm-hmm. and, and that, you know, I mean, it's just like, he knows right then and there, like, well, <laughs> this yeah. isn't going to go well. <laughs> right, I mean, just right. what, what, you know, what Kurtwood brings. And the, the, the funny thing, I'm perhaps, is most people associate him with that 70s show, right? I mean, where he mm-hmm. plays this, you know, he plays a, I don't know, what, what would you say? Is he a taskmaster on that show, Kenny? I mean, yeah, well, he's kind of a dick, but uh, <laughs> lovable dick. But the, I mean, the other thing, we didn't talk about something episode, but the <laughs> other thing that people associate Kurtwood Smith, Smith with is RoboCop. RoboCop, yeah. Right, of course, of course. So, sure. you know, yeah, it both like RoboCop is a very big performance, very yeah. kind of arch, and that seventy show is a sitcom. Um, right, right, you know, right. and I don't, I don't mean, I don't mean that uh, to throw shade, but yeah, it's yeah. a different kind of acting. Um, he obviously is uh, incredibly layered, incredibly versatile. Um, he's a wonderful yeah. actor. We, we've seen him yeah. a lot. He's he's done so many films, but so um, I, I have one last question for you for you, Tom, which is. As we mentioned at the top of this, uh, at the top of this interview, you also did "Honey, I Shrunk the Kids" in 1989. I'm assuming that was written after Dead Poets Society, yes, or before, yes, okay. yes. It was. I, I rewrote it, okay. And so it was written, yeah, somewhere before. And uh, what is? I mean, these are so, two such drastically different films. So I guess my question really is more about how is the writing process similar between those two films. Did you find that there was any sort of crossover in terms of the actual process or was it kind of? Well, the the crossover for me, you know, it was a rewrite. It was essentially sure. a, a drama when it oh, was wow. given to me. And I was told you have a week to turn it into a comedy so that Rick Moranis will actually mm-hmm. agree to, to do it because he was balking. So, mm-hmm. um, okay. it, it, <laughs> so, uh, and I guess for me, it's it's a matter of of sort of repeopling the cast with people I know who I felt would be appropriate right. uh, for that that story and bring the kind of personality and imagination that that those people, when I think about them, would bring to those roles. You know, so and that's similar to what what I did with sure. Dead Poets Society. It was you know, uh, I, I cast it out of my life. Um, you know, not people who knew each other or were even, you know, someone knew when they were seven, others when they were 27, but they were they were the right type. So that part of it was was certainly similar. So we're, they also those both have top- large 
kid cast, like teen cast. Yeah. yeah sort of go, yeah. go ahead, Kenny. Which is why I think they picked me to do Honey, you know? Right. Were those two of the top 10 grossing films of the year? Tom, they were. Probably know. They were both I, in the top 10. I don't know. Not yeah. a lot of people can say that. And for our one of our favorite years of, uh, of film, you know, we... We we have we have crowned Brendan Fraser and Kristen Dunst the King and Queen of 1999, which is yeah. our flagship podcast. But I think this might be a coronation for you. I'm just going to say, King, yeah, of, yeah. King of 89, <laughs> close, Phil. I mean, in terms of certainly in terms of writing, I can't I can't think of someone who. Yeah. I mean, the, what, what we talked about this uh, with Rochelle, but I mean, the it's a staggering amount of money that Dead Poets Society made. I mean. When you think about the budget being, I think it was around 16 million and it grosses around 300 million in 1989. I mean, yeah. What for, is that like? For, for a movie Just, like that. Go ahead. Tell us the <laughs> yeah. cool things you bought. Like, what is, what is it? Like, I get, I mean, that's the thing. Like, what's it like to have, to, 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 to have just done it? It's, Just have it, it like have it like, like it's it's not a grand slam, but somehow somehow you hit a grand slam and then there's eight runs on the board. I don't know what happened. Yeah, what? it's weird. It's it was it's an out of body experience, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'd been struggling along as a writer for for years, and you know, could barely get enough work to to keep going, and then all of a sudden, you know, things just started to click, and you you, you know, and I, I basically thought that they were Disney was dumping both movies. I heard about six weeks before the release, they were going to release Dead Poets opposite Batman. And I thought, oh, my God, that, you know, they're killing this movie. And I went up to see, I stormed into Jeff Katzenberg's office. His secretary said, he's not here. And I said, where is he? She said, he's over there in a board meeting. And she, I said, well, how long? And she said, well, if you're so upset, just go on in. <laughs> so I just walked into the board meeting. And Jeffrey looks up and goes, what, what are you doing here? And I said, you're dumping Dead Poet Society and you're screwing up, honey. I shrunk the kids. And he said, well, sit down. This is a good thing to talk about in front of the board, you know? <laughs> Can I just say, talk about a different time. Like, can you imagine the system today I know. saying, go I know. on into the board meeting? I know. It was wild. And, uh, yeah, it was kind of a small company in a way back then. So, uh, sure. and so, did, you know, he gave his talk about how when everybody's going left, they go right. And, you know, that this would be a summer with nothing but tentpole movies and people would, mm-hmm who wanted to see something, you know, more adult would go to dead poet society. And he was perfectly, you know, happy with that. So I, I was prepared for a, a disaster. And, uh, uh, so it was wow. a shock. Yeah. The, yeah. So honey, it, honey, I showed the kids yeah. did open opposite Batman. I think and either it, it, it or dead. It opened poet a week society. or two before. It, yeah, no, honey, it did, I'm looking at it. They both opened June 23rd. And I think uh, they platformed dead poets. Cause dead no, poets. no, 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 no. Uh, no, Honey, I Shook the Kids Honey, opened, opened. Yes, you're right. O- Honey did. Opened, opened two weeks before Batman, I think. Yep. Right? And Dead Honey Poets well, opened two weeks before Batman. Honey opened okay. against Batman. Okay. Yes, Honey and, opened against Batman. It was three weeks. Dead Poets opened three weeks. So within June 1989, <laughs> you went from a guy who's written two scripts to a guy who's written two scripts and turned Disney into what it is today. Well, 
You I'd saved like, Disney. I, yeah, yeah I, I totally agree with that. <laughs> well, we, you know, the, the, the thing is, Disney needed saving in 1989. It really well, Touchstone was starting to to to, yeah. to bring him back and Hollywood yeah. Pictures. Yeah, but um, but yeah, Disney Amazing. was in a, it was in a bit of a spot, and a, uh, both of those movies. You know, really show the kind kind of the the breadth of what they were able to do in the live action space. Well, it, it's uh, you know we talked about Little Mermaid, which was also an eighty nine film, and it really yes. does feel to Kenny's point. You know, Dead Poet Society, High Nature, the Kids, Little Mermaid is the beginning of the ascension, right? Like it's the beginning of them understanding their brand and yep. or maybe expanding their brand is a better way to put it. Yeah, and I and I think that that's uh, I you know it's it's no small feat, Tom, that you uh, that you were you know the person well, behind. There was films. definitely the feeling over there amongst between Katzenberg, Eisner and the others that the, everything they were doing was being watched because right. Disney was kind of when, when they walked in, it was teetering. So, uh, you know, Splash, I think, opened and it was yes. not theirs. But these were the kind of executives that actually promoted Splash. They thought, you know, any, any winner, anything that'll help the bottom line, even if it was sure. from the old regime, is fine. So, um, any uh, any port in a storm, exactly. So, uh, <laughs> but again, small company. You know, you you knew I knew everything that was going on there in terms of what, what they were releasing and what they were thinking about it and everything else. So, uh, and you know, Jeffrey and Michael were there for dailies almost every day, amazing for everything. You know, and it was. That's awesome. It's it's, yeah. it's a it's a fascinating time, and and you know, obviously, Kenny and I are big fans, but um, we we can't thank you enough for taking the time, Tom. To, it's my to pleasure. To really, this really enjoyed it. An absolute blast. Great and, to have uh, you on. Truly, thank you. truly, thank, thank you. you so so much. Podcast like it, just podcast like it. Podcast like it's nineteen eighty nine. Baby fish mouth. Baby fish mouth. Planning for your next trip. Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out 
Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.